If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey everybody, today Rado talks through episode 19 of the podcast, which I'm sorry to say is probably going to be a little bit shorter than your average episode, which is kind of sad, and there's a number of reasons for that, um, which we'll go through as we move forward. As always, you know, my normal structure is talk about upcoming games, then talk of revisit top tens, and then do the Q&A. So, we could jump as per normal, right directly into the talking about upcoming games. But here's the problem. What is the date today? It is the 7th of December right now. I'm actually running a little bit late. I should have filmed or recorded this like a week ago. And this is where I talk about you know games that I have recently added to my 2016 Games of Interest Geek List. Here's the problem. 2016 is almost over. At this point, there aren't any more 2016 games of interest. Now, there's a whole bunch of 2017 games of interest, but I haven't even started working on that geek list yet. i got to do that sometime this month and roll it out in time for January 1st. So, with that in mind, I don't have anything ready to say. I haven't actually done my homework yet. Now, to make up for that, though, in the next podcast, which should hopefully be coming out by the end of this month or the first week of January, I will be able to do kind of a, hey, everybody, here's what's coming in 2017. It won't just be a small list of games. It'll be a big list of games, you know, stuff that didn't come out this year, stuff I've heard about that's on its way, etc., etc. So... We'll be getting to that next time. But for now, we don't have any games of interest to talk about. I'm so sorry, so sad. One of the reasons this is going to be a relatively short podcast. But don't worry, folks. I've got something in mind to make up for it. So hold on a second. We'll be right back with some top tens. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. And... Apparently, I need to apologize because Jen was eavesdropping on that last little segment I did. And she said, how long did you just spend to say absolutely nothing at all? <laughs> I believe is what you just said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I, I, I said a lot of words without actually saying anything of substance. And for that, I apologize, everybody. Although I think it's pretty obvious that Jen doesn't really listen to the show because if she did, she'd know that's kind of my thing. <laughs> waffling on at great length about a whole lot of nothing. And we're going to continue with that now by revisiting old top tens. Now, last podcast, I promised to cover the other two top tens that we had not hit, which were top ten things Jen and I disagree about, and top ten has a sad type games that I'm bummed we got rid of for various sundry reasons. And now here's the thing. There's really not that much to revisit on either of those topics. I, you know, I went back and I looked through YouTube comments and Reddit comments and Board Game Geek comments. And, you know, I mean, uh, for the, the one about Jens and my disagreement, that was pretty straightforward. I think everybody understood that pretty well. And while I could probably list some more games that fall under those same blanket categories, I don't know that that would really be 
adding much to the conversation there. And certainly nothing that you wouldn't be able to get just by going to http colon slash slash gone.rado.com where you can see a list of every game we've ever had that we've gotten rid of and why. And um, sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes it's because Jen and I disagree about the overall qualities of the game. But like I said, it's so rare, so incredibly rare. I don't think I'm going to spend any more time on that. Now, I could spend some time listing even more games that I recognize are awesome and that I'm kind of sad that we weren't able to enjoy and we therefore got rid of them. I mean, I listed 10. And the interesting thing that came up over and over and over again from feedback when I did that top 10 was, stop being such a Care Bear. That's not the term some people used. And uh, just suck it up. Or do... House rules, house rules, house rules. And, yeah, I you know, I got so much feedback from that top 10, I went and added a new frequently asked question entry to faq.rado.com so I can now use that whenever anybody wants to tell me, ah, stop being such a baby. It's not so mean. Uh, the, you know, the player versus player stuff in that game, it's inconsequential. No one should be bothered by that. There's something wrong with you. Or you're wrong. Or you don't understand what you like. Or whatever. I don't know why people want to argue subjective arguments like this, but apparently why they do. So I ended up making a new FAQ where I go... It's my longest FAQ answer where I give my most thoroughly worded answer or explanation of my stance on aggression in games. So, um, you know, honestly, I don't know if there's much to talk about there because really it was just... Uh, people repeating that same strain. I mean, heck, there's a lot more games I could talk about that we got rid of that were absolutely brilliant. Explorers of the North Sea, um, you know, Dice City, Covert, City of Spies, uh, Kuhn v. Lockia, Imperial Settlers, Pirates of the Seven Seas, Few Acres of Snow, Stronghold, New Dawn, Battles of Souls, Season, Star Trek, Fleet Captains, Neanderthal, Golden Ages. Tons of games that we got rid of because all really good designs, but too mean. I don't know what the point is to, you know, belabor that. I mean, heck, a lot of these I've done run-throughs for, and I've talked at great length about why they were too mean. And, you know, and then another really common reason we got rid of games, player count. You know, I mean, at least there, that's a significantly less subjective thing. It's a, I think it's a little bit more objective when you can point to, hey, look, this is clearly a game that's better with more. Two, it suffers. Why would we keep a game around that suffers it too when we've got so many games that excel it too? So, you know, other games that I didn't mention in the run-through that we got rid of because of player count, like Space Alert, Five Tribes, uh, Dungeon Bazaar, Grog Island, Council of Four, Francis Drake, Asgard, 504, Yunnan. These are all really, really sharp games. Kill Shakespeare, Infiltration, but they need more than two to be at their best. And so I didn't keep them. And then, you know, there's other weird reasons we sometimes get rid of games too. But, you know, that's just ultimately not that interesting a topic either. So, right off the bat, boom! This is going to be a really short podcast. That's terrible! But... Don't worry, folks. I've got the solution. Just a couple days ago, I put up another top 10, which was best games that came out prior to 2009. And that has gotten so much feedback. So let's talk about that topic a little bit. I think I could go into great depth about it. One, it seems like the, like I said, it's only been up for a day or so, but the overwhelming response is, what about games X, Y, or Z? And whatever game they're mentioning, they all fall under the doesn't work well with two, your power grids, your settlers of Catans, your El Grandes, 
or is crazy mean and vicious in terms of gameplay, and Jen and I wouldn't like it. Your War of the Rings, whatever it might be. Um, you know, I think I really need to do a better job in my top tens of prefacing right up front that, hey, folks, remember, we don't play games that don't work well with two, and we ignore games that... I mean, I used to do that in top tens, but I didn't on that, and I really kind of regret it because I've spent a lot of time over the last 24 hours... Reminding people, yeah, Power Grid doesn't really work very well with two. Yes, it is a brilliant game. It's not in my top ten games because it's not a good two-player game. Sorry. But here's what I did. Uh, I won't dwell on that. That was actually a tricky list to make. I have to admit, I was standing at the ready to do a top ten list for 2008, 2007, 2006, 2005, 2004, uh, 2003, and 2002. I think, if I recall correctly. And then I was going to do a blanket one for everything from 2001 back. Basically, everything from the previous century. Um, and, you know, month after month after month, the voters kept saying, no, we don't care about the best games of 2005. Why do you keep asking us this? And, but it was finally when I said, hey, everything prior to 2009, that the voters said, yeah, we'll listen to that list. But here's the thing. I've still got my list of all these games that are really, really great. Or I should say that Jen and I really, really enjoy from all these years. So let's actually break it down. Not just everything prior to 2009, but let's just break it down by year. Let's talk about 2008. Um, now, on the top ten list, two games. My number one and my number three, Pandemic and Dominion, came out in the year 2008. But one, two, three, four, five other games came out that Jen and I really, really like quite a bit. We haven't kept all of them, but we really, really like them. And those are Dixit, which to this day is the only game we own that has a minimum three-player count on it. And honestly, I don't know why we keep it, because almost we never actually get to play it. Even when people come over, we end up playing something else. But Jen loves it so much, and it is such a brilliant design. That whole notion of, uh, you know, well, uh, everybody's played Dixit. I don't have to explain it right now. Although I feel bad because I've never done a run through for it. Maybe someday I will. Uh, it's honestly though another reason I'm inclined to get rid of it is because we have Mysterium now. And personally, I like Mysterium more. It does the same thing, but does it more interesting way. It can actually work well with two. But Jen loves Dixit so much. We'll always keep it around. And heck, maybe once every couple of years we'll get to play it. Um, so 2008 gave us that. And, um, let's see, they gave us Roll Through the Ages, a brilliant, brilliant Yahtzee dice civilization builder from Matt Leacock. Absolutely love that game. Stone Age is a wonderful gateway-style worker placement dice rolling game. Actually, I remember correctly, I think I put that in my top ten gateway games, uh, which I did a few years ago. Ghost Stories, I absolutely love that cooperative game, although it's one of those ones that would fall under the aegis of games Jen and I disagree about because it's a co-op that is cruel and unrelenting, and Jen hated it, but I loved it. I thought it was an absolutely phenomenal game. And then there's Le Havre. We actually kept Le Havre for a long time and enjoyed it quite a bit, but I ultimately got rid of it when I learned that we had been playing it wrong for literally years. And when we started playing it correctly, I, I found the game was significantly weaker. And of course, that's going to immediately people say, well, just keep playing it wrong. I'm like, well, no, I don't want to play it wrong. If, if I want to play it the way it was designed by Uwe Rosenberg, because I'm sure he's a smart, I know he's a smart guy. He's a brilliant designer and he has his reasons for doing things the way he did it. But basically, Jen and I, we played Laha for the longest time such that you have to, every cycle that, um, you know, every round that you go through, if you owe 
money and loans, you have to pay for every single loan you've taken. The real rules, which we never realized, were, no, no, it doesn't matter how many loans you take, you only have to pay a a flat fee. So the game actively encourages and, in fact, rewards you for burying yourself in debt. Because you can take on five, six, seven, eight, nine loans and just get a ridiculously huge amount of money and suffer no ill consequences. Because by the end of the game, you're making so much money, you'll be able to pay those loans off easy. Um, you know, when, when we played it the wrong way, where every loan made us have to pay interest, that would destroy you, and the game would become too challenging. But played correctly, the best thing to do in that game is take a bunch of loans and um, build for the big shipping um, you know, steel and coke big ship thing at the end. And the game always kind of ends the same way. We found it suddenly got very repetitive. Whereas before, where you couldn't afford to take all those loans, you had to work a bit harder and other in-game strategies, going big into cattle and leather, were viable alternatives because you needed a way to get food. But when you can just purposely not make food and instead take loans to cover all of that, the game kind of got broken. Now, to a certain extent, I understand why Lahav needs to be that way for higher player counts because um, the number of turns and around doesn't really change much. So people need enough time. Um, you know, they don't have enough time to pay off big loans, but they need to take the loans. But as a two-player game, it almost kind of felt broken once we started. It worked. Don't get me wrong. It was still a brilliant design, but the game became very samey, very rote. We could have gone back to playing it wrong, but I was not inclined to do that because I. In the back of my mind, I'm always worried, well, is the game actually balanced this way, or is there something broken? Why play a game that maybe we're playing by our house rule is actually making unbalanced when we can play a game that we know is balanced instead? So Lahav did not stick around after I learned the proper way to play. But 2008 was a very good year. There's a few more games, but still, these were ones that we've all, at one point or another, enjoyed a lot. Now, let's move on to 2007. That, oh, what do I got here? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I got 11 games to talk about in 2007, um, which makes it, by my reckoning, the best game prior to, the best year prior to 2009, uh, because 2007 has 11 great games. What are they? Well, they're the ones I talked about in the top 10 Agricola, Notre Dame, Vikings, Galaxy Trucker, and Biblios. But there were a bunch more. Let's talk about In the Year of the Dragon. That was one a lot of people have asked about. Hey, what about Year of the Dragon? Year of the Dragon is an amazing game. Didn't quite make my top 10, but it certainly made my top 15. Uh, the reason it didn't crawl into my top 10 is because as brilliant as that game is, and you can watch my run-through to see more, man... When it goes bad for you in that game, it goes so bad, it goes so wrong. I'm always a little bit afraid to play it because maybe I'm going to have a really, really bad game of it. And you know, that's not the game's fault. That's my fault for playing poorly. But you know, it's 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 weird. I just can't rate it as high as some of the other games in 2007, just because I always go in with a little trepidation. But on the other hand, man. In the Year of the Dragon has maybe hands down the best two-player variant rules ever. Anybody who fancies themselves a board game designer needs to play in the Year of the Dragon and understand just how amazingly brilliant Steffenfeld was when he came up with his two-player rules. That two-player action selection system, or restriction system, I would should say, would work so brilliantly in so many games. And so many games suffer at two because they don't introduce it. In the Year of the Dragon, in my mind, is so brilliant, it is kind of required playing if you want to make, if you want to design Euro-style board games that support two players. 
But anyway, what else went on in 2007? Well, we had Kalis Magna Carta. A lot of people asked, what about Kalis? What about Kalis? And I'm like, have you played Kalis? It's one of the meanest worker placement games in the market. Why would we ever want to play that? And we don't. That's why I didn't make my top 10, although it's a brilliant game. But Kalis Magna Carta, I talked about this in the run-through I did for it, is almost as brilliant. It does a wonderful job of distilling all the 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 really awesome design of Kalis into a small portable card format. It's a great travel game. We've taken it on many trips. And it gives you the opportunity to strip all the nastiness of the provost completely out of the game. So that's why Kalis Magna Carta Uber Kalis any day of the week for us. And let's see. Demo. Oh, Race for the Galaxy. A lot of people talk about Race for the Galaxy. How dare I mention San Juan but not mention Race for the Galaxy? Now, of course, people who are saying that didn't actually watch my top 10 video. They just saw the list of it because I did actually talk about Race for the Galaxy. Uh, it's a brilliant game. I choose San Juan over it because it, uh, it, um, it doesn't, because of the icons. Sorry. Because of the icons. If they had adopted text on that game, it would win. It, I, it would have won over San Juan, but they didn't. So San Juan wins because they had the wherewithal to put text on their cards rather than a weird Byzantine hieroglyphics. So Race for the Galaxy stayed off the list because of that. Uh, let's see, what else do you got? Oh, we've got Thebes. Thebes is a lovely little game. I have to admit... It's kind of been replaced by Thebes the Card Game, just because that game is its smaller, it's more compact, and it's faster. The, my big complaint about Thebes, which is a brilliant game about being an archaeologist, Indiana Jones style, with uh, not fighting Nazis, but zipping all over the place, doing research, running archaeological digs. It's a brilliant game with a wonderful, wonderful mechanism. When you do a dig, you reach into a bag and hope to pull out treasures and not empty sand. Really, really cool. But the problem with that game is it's too long. It's much longer than it should be. And so Thebes the card game, or the Grave Robbers, or, you know, the, the newer card game version of it streamlined it. It became a much better game. So that's why Thebes didn't quite make the top ten. And then you got Hamburgum, which is a lovely game from Matt Gertz. It's another one of his rondelles. And I have to admit, I haven't played this for a long time. I do wonder if it would ultimately be replaced in my mind by Concordia. Because, I mean, I love Navigador, but ultimately I traded it away because I realized I'll never play Navigador again when I could play Concordia. I think the same might be true of Hamburgum as well, but I need to go back and try it. And, oh, last thing for 2007, a very, very, very good year, would be Brass, of course. Which is odd because officially it is not a two-player game. It's a three-player minimum. But... Fans of the game came up with an absolutely phenomenal two-player variant that Jen and I have played several times, and we think it works wonders. And I cannot wait to get the new reprint that's coming next year that will actually, once and for all, officially ratify the two-player rules, and it'll have a two-player board and everything built in. I got rid of my original copy so that I can get the new one that's coming out. Very, very excited about that. Why didn't Brass make the top ten? It's long. It's it's a, it's a bit too long, and honestly, if we're going to play something that long, we'd probably play Railways of the World, which did make the top ten, over Brass. I mean, some people said, why doesn't Brass... The other problem with Brass is, you know, Brass is an interesting game because it's got two halves. The first, the you know, the pre-railroad and post-railroad, and the pre-railroad half, where you're actually building canals to ship goods all up and down the industrialized uh, England, 
it's 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 a precursor. It's 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 almost like a long extended setup. And the really interesting part of the game comes once you get that out of the way and you get into you know the the second half of the game. And I always kind of wish you know I have to be to be fair I haven't played it that often. I always kind of think man we're just kind of going through the motions. Can we just get through this part to get to the main part? I don't really have that problem with other games. So that's why Brass didn't quite make the top ten. Although it all is it's certainly brilliant. So anyway, 2007 was an awesome year. Now let's go back to 2006. No game from 2006 actually made my top 10, which is heartbreaking because there are, in fact, one, two, three, four, five, six games that I rate very, very highly from that year. So let's talk about them. Let's talk about Turn and Taxes, which is... It's a real shame. This one kind of seems to get overlooked. People often pr- pr- would prefer to play Ticket to Ride over Turn and Taxes. They have very, very similar feels about how you're collecting cards and using them to build routes and stuff like that. But uh, Turn and Taxes is a much more interesting uh, game. It's still very, very light, very gateway. It's very dry as well. Heck, maybe I like it because I was a mailman for a couple of years back in my early 20s. And so I have a, you know, a fondness for the subject matter. But it is, it's still a really, really sharp game. And I think holds up. We actually have the expansion for it. I've never actually played with that, but I'd like to someday. Not that I ever get a chance because I'm always having to play all the new stuff. No time for the old stuff. Uh, SC, what else in 2006? We've got Turn and, or I'm sorry, I just mentioned that. We've got Blue Moon City. An excellent, excellent Reiner Knizia game. Uh, kind of a, an interesting area control, which is interesting in of itself because generally Jen and I, generally area control is a little bit too confrontational for us, but it works brilliantly in this game. You can watch my run through to find out more, but really neat game. Not neat enough to make the top 10, but really neat. Then you got Through the Ages, which is a phenomenal design. It's a towering achievement of design. And um, the only reason we don't own it is because Nations destroyed it for us. Nations, we can play in half the time, and it doesn't require any... Nations is nowhere near as mean and in-your-face and all about destruction as Through the Ages is. But Through the Ages, I mean, i got to give props to it. It is an absolutely brilliant... um, Mastery is insanely influential and an absolutely wonderful design, but too mean, too long for us. That's why it didn't make the top ten. And in fact, we don't even keep it because Nations does everything it does better. For for our taste, I should say. So many would disagree with that. Then you've got Tuluva, which is a very, very charming tile laying game. You know, Carcassonne esque where we're all laying tiles to the same central thing and building up this big what is it? It's, I think it's a Polynesian island, and we're trying to claim spaces with our little village huts and stuff like that. Uh, you know, kind of Carcassonne esque, but the brilliant thing about this game is not only do you spread outward laying the tiles, but you build upwards because this is a volcanically active island. And so you can lay tiles on top of others to represent the volcanoes pushing the island up higher and higher and higher. It's a really, really sharp game with wonderful components. These incredibly lovely, cool, thick tiles. So that when you've actually finished, you've built something of substance. It's really, really nice. I'll probably be doing a run-through within the next couple months because it's almost at the top of the thumbs list on the request list. Uh, and in fact, I think it either has recently gotten a reprint or is about to get a reprint. So all the more reason for me to do this run-through. Because I think the reprint, for some reason, is ridiculously high-priced. Um, but, I mean, for the longest time, it was ridiculously high-priced because it was out of print and nobody could find it. But anyway, uh, Tuluva from 2006 is a lovely, lovely tile-laying game. And then there's also a Makirinos, which is another one of those interesting oddities. An area control game that Jen and I actually enjoyed. Now, I've done a run-through for this, so you can go check that out. But it's an archaeology trying to let, you know claim plots of land in Egypt so that we can dig up artifacts and display them 
back home in the museum. And there's area control going on out in the desert. There's area control going on in the museum. It's a really, really smart um, role selection game. There's a lot going on, and we actually enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, we didn't keep it, therefore it's not in the top ten, because... Well, I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the game at all, but the more we played it, the more kind of vicious the area control got. It's Also, it's another great example of how to do area control really well for two, because it has this very smartly implemented um, two-player dummy system, and it's unfortunately it's the dummy system that made the game... It's, it's interesting. You know, Jen and I, we had it for a long time, we enjoyed it, we found it playable, it was a little aggressive, but we lived with it, but then we actually played it as a three-player game once, and suddenly, oh man, it's hard to go back and play this as a two-player game. Not because it doesn't work well as a two-player game, but because the two-player game is so much more cutthroat. So ultimately, I traded away, but it's still absolutely brilliant. You can watch my run-through. And then the last one from 2006 is this very, very clever little maze fantasy racing game called Draken. D-R-A-K-O-N. Came out in 2006. It's been reprinted a couple of times. And um, it's it's a game where everybody's just racing to get out of this dungeon. Um, but the thing is, the tile... You're building the dungeon, laying tiles as we go, trying to find the exit. And the every tile that we have when we move into it can trigger different effects like rotating tiles and doing all kinds of funky stuff. It's a little in your face, but it's really clever. It's very fast and fun and light. Going to be a much more interesting game with more than two, but we did enjoy it back in the day. So I think actually we still have it up in the attic in England, actually. Um, don't love it, but definitely liked Draken. So that was a quick review of some of the games we liked or loved in 2006. Now let's move on to 2005. Two games from 2005 made the list. Glory to Rome and Railways of the World. But there's four more that didn't make the list, and they all deserve uh, notice. Runebound 2nd Edition. Oh man, such a great game. And Runebound 2nd Edition is so much better than Runebound 3rd Edition. Now, I've talked about that at great length in my Runebound 3rd Edition run-through. I talked about it in Runebound 2nd Edition. Um, although, interestingly, just this week, we took and put my huge collection of Runebound 2nd Edition stuff in the mail, sent it off to somebody in Germany, because as much as I liked it, I couldn't justify keeping it in the closet, because we just never got to play all that wonderful content. I mean, I had Midnight, I had Sands of something or other. I mean, I, I had three of the big box ones. I had a dozen of the small box expansions. I mean, I, the guy I sold it to, he got it for a song. Um, I hope he really enjoys it, but it's an absolutely brilliant, fun... It's one of the few Ameritrash games that Jen and I enjoyed, and if we had it right here, we'd enjoy it still even more. But, you know, with stuff like... Gloomhaven coming in the future. I just know I'll never have a chance to play it again. But it's still brilliant. Loved it at the time. Runebound, second edition, not third edition. Which, again, for my taste, took a real tumble in terms of design quality. Still a great game, but I, I thought... Oh, well, I talked about it in the run-through, so you can, you can hear more about it there. Roma from Stefan Feld is an awesome little two-player facing off against a, each other with a battle line in between us. I'm playing my cards to my side. You're playing your cards to your side. It's almost like what would happen if Stefan Feld made a Magic the Gathering style game. Turns out it's brilliant. It's a really, really sharp game. You can see why in the run-through I did. And ultimately I didn't keep it because... We really liked it, but again, it's a very in-your-face game where you spend a lot of time trying to destroy your opponent's stuff on their side of the line. And after I played Institute of Magical Arts, which had that same kind of players face off across a line and play stuff to each other's side, but um, 
you know, Institute of Magical Arts is so good. I mean, I, I just couldn't keep Roma. I, you know, I, Roma got killed by Institute. But still, a phenomenal game from 2005. Liked it quite a bit. Then you've got Fjords, which I did a run-through for not too long ago. One of our absolute favorite travel games. Such a wonderful, charming little tile lane game. Another example of area control, that rarest of things, area control that we actually enjoy. We still enjoy it to this day. Um, it's basically a little chess match. I mean, everything about this game means we should not like it, but we both enjoy it tremendously. Maybe it's because of the small size. Maybe it's because of the incredibly short, fast playtime. Uh, you know, the really wonderful presentation. It's a real shame this game has been out of print forever and likely will never get reprinted. I Actually, I recently found out, after I did the run-through and I was bemoaning the fact that it has never gotten a reprint. Turns out, the uh, designer, the very talented designer of this game, died. And that might be why it never gets reprinted, because the rights reverted back to him, and no one has the rights to print it now. Which is... Oh, well, it's heartbreaking that he died, but even more heartbreaking that people now cannot enjoy his wonderful, wonderful design of Fjords. Oh, it's, it's, uh, anyway, though. And then last one from 2005, we've got Ticket to Ride Europe. Which, for my money, I played a bunch of Ticket to Rides. It's the best one. Still better than all the others. Um, now, that said, not good enough for us to keep. Uh, a while ago, I started calling out a lot of our gateway-level games because, you know, Jenna, we just don't play games that light anymore, and we don't have that much use for gateway-style games because we don't gateway very often, living here in the middle of nowhere in Malta. Um, but... Doesn't mean it's not an absolutely wonderful game, and we've had a lot of great times playing it. Uh, you know, actually, that was the game, I, if I recall correctly, we used on Jen's parents the first time we were showing them what games were like, and they loved it too. Um, really, really sharp stuff. And, and Ticket to Ride doesn't get any better than Ticket to Ride Europe, which came out in 2005. Let's move on to 2004. I've got four games of note. I remember I said right up front, I could have made a top 10 for 2004. There were certainly other games I could talk about that maybe we didn't like, but that are very, very good. But there are four games that we actually like and or love. One of them made my top 10, San Juan. I talked about it in the video. But the other three, St. Petersburg is a phenomenal design. It's um, one of the uh, best early examples of engine building. It's in my top 10 engine building games of all time. Absolutely brilliant. You can hear more about it in my top 10 engine builders or... Video, or you can watch my run-through and hear what we thought about it. But it's a great game. It recently got a reprint, um, and I had the option to get the reprint, which had some new modules and whatnot. But I ultimately decided, you know what? I like the original version better. I like the original art style, and um, some of the stuff that the new version added, I wasn't a big fan of. So uh, I stuck with my original 2004 edition of St. Pete's, which I think would have been in my top 15 if I'd kept um, you know, counting out. Then we've got Antiquity, which is a brilliant civilization game. I did a run-through for that one a few years ago. Man, that was tough. And while we both like the game, I had to get rid of it for several reasons. Box, comically oversized. Just absolutely, insanely, needlessly too large. And I've got limited shelf space. So that killed it right there. Length, way too long for our taste, much like Through the Ages and whatnot. And fiddliness, oh my gosh. Probably a prime candidate for the most fiddly board game in history. Um, for reasons why, you can watch my run-through, but that game has more tokens, and I mean, you need a pair of tweezers to play that game as you're delicately trying to put, pick up or place all these little tokens all over the board as you build up your civilization. Also, it, it was maybe a little bit too confrontational for us, although we never found that to be too much of a problem. We could mostly live and let live in that game, and it was an absolutely brilliant simulation of Stuff that most civilization games don't bother 
to um, simulate, like the if, the environmental impact your civilization has on the surrounding countryside. Absolutely brilliant, wonderful game, and I believe it's going to be getting a reprint very soon. So well worth seeking out again if you've got a pair of tweezers to play it with. And then the last one from 2004 is Goa, which is a brilliant, brilliant one of a kind auction game slash civilization builder. Nothing else quite like it out there, and really liked it. Ultimately got rid of it um, because it worked well as two, but it's another one of those ones where, hey, when we eventually got a chance that we one time played it with four, it was then kind of hard to go back and play with two because I remembered how much better it was. And, you know, ignorance was bliss. If I'd never played it with four, I, we probably still have it now and probably enjoy it as a two-player game. But you know what? We've got a lot of auction games that are phenomenal as two-player games, so we don't need one that works as a two-player and is better with more. So that's why Goa didn't stick around, but still a brilliant game. Still would make my top ten of 2004. That's why it didn't make my top ten of prior to 2009, though. Then, on to 2003... Pickens are getting slim, folks. In 2003, I've only got two games of note to me. One is Carcassonne the Castle, which was my number 11. A lot of people said, hey, why isn't Carcassonne in your top 10? And it's like, well, one, Carcassonne would never be because Carcassonne Castle destroys Carcassonne. It is so much better. And that's Carcassonne with any combination of expansions you want. Does not come close to Carcassonne Castle. Carcassonne City does not come close to Carcassonne Castle. Nothing compares in the Carcassonne universe to Carcassonne the Castle. Um, it's a shame. It's only it works for two players. But heck, that's the only way we're going to play it anyway. So it's absolutely phenomenal. We absolutely love it. It's my number 11. Um, and I really struggled. I was kind of tempted to... Uh, what was my number 10? Biblios? No, Biblios just barely beat it out. Both phenomenal games. But the other one that didn't make my top 10 that's worth uh, mentioning is Attica, which is a neat little tile-laying game. Um, I remember we have not played that it's still back in the attic in England. We haven't played it since we've moved to Malta. So I can't really say how high I rate it. We only played it a couple of times back in England. We thought it was really, really cool. But I have to admit, at this point, I barely remember it. All I remember is I did like it. Uh, but I just can't rate it as well as I could because I need to play it some more. But Attica is a really, really sharp tile-laying game. And that's all I can say because it's been so long. But anyway, let's move on to 2002 where we've got three games to talk about. Puerto Rico. Can't not talk about that. Now, of course, Puerto Rico is, again, officially a three-player minimum game. And the designer, he ultimately did put out some kind of semi-official two-player rules, and those have now become official when the Puerto Rico 10-year anniversary uh, edition came out. But, you know, I mean, the reason... Puerto Rico doesn't make my list is it you know it would make my list if Jen and I we played three four five player games more often but we only play two player and the thing that always bugs me is that whenever we would play Puerto Rico two player I was never I never had the sense of confidence that we were playing it right not that we were getting the rules wrong but that there is a definitive correct way to play because the official two player variant rules you know, there are a lot of arguments against them that there's like fundamental imbalances and that, you know, just the, the developers never really spend enough time because it was kind of an afterthought. And there's just all this weird kind of controversy swirling around it that ultimately, well, two things. I, I, I always felt a little, you know, we, we enjoyed the game, but like, we're like, hey, we've got San Juan. It works well as a two player game. We don't need all this, um, um, uncertainty 
of the two-player experience of the full game. And then on top of that, I had the Anniversary Edition, which I knew I could sell for a lot of money. And, you know, so it just didn't make any sense to keep it on the shelf when, um, you know, I could sell it for... I sold it for a pretty good uh, chunk of change, so that was pretty handy. And again, we just had San Juan, so I ultimately got rid of it. But I don't want to take anything away from it. Puerto Rico is brilliant. It certainly deserves its classic status. And um, you know, all the time, it was in the number one spot. And I'm, I don't think it's in the top ten on Board Game Geek anymore, but it's, I know it's. I think it's in the top twenty. Anyway, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant game, but really better off. It's one of those ones that's better off with higher player counts, basically. Oh, and then the last one from two thousand two. This one, I'll be honest, this one Jen loves a lot more than me. It's called Clans. And um, it's a neat little game because... Oh, what is it? Uh, it's a prehistoric man, you know, the, the dawn of modern man. And uh, you've got this board where you're placing these little huts and trying to get them to kind of glom together to become neat little um, clusters, you know, little baby steps towards modern civilization. And the thing is, there's all these different huts of different colors, and you have a secret color that you're rooting for. You're trying to place stuff out on the board so that the color that you like most is the one that will thrive the most. But the thing is, if you just are really blatant about that and always make sure blue's doing real well, then everybody else is going to know, and they'll make sure blue fails. So you want to do well, but you don't want to be too obvious about it, because you don't reveal until the end of the game. And, you know, There's other games that do this, but Clans is a really, really brilliant idea of it, and Jen absolutely loves it. Me, I'm a little on the fence about it, because I think it's better with more than two. At two, you know, it, 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 it's not as easy to hide, and there's not quite as much chaos. I, I think it'd be better with more, but it's still a really, really sharp game, and Jen absolutely loves clans. Now, nothing... Nothing happened of note in 2001. <gasps> Gasp, there I said it. But now let's move on to 2000, where I've got two games of note. Citadels, which I've done a run-through for, so you can see what we thought of it. Um, ultimately, didn't keep it because, again, these days, there are so many games that don't require player conflict that we didn't need to keep a game that did require player conflict, but still a really sharp game, Citadels. The other one, though, Lord of the Rings from Reiner Knizia. I love this one to death. It's the first modern cooperative Euro game Brilliant, brilliant design. A little abstract, but still very sharp. Didn't keep it because it was too harsh and unforgiving. And it was the it was one of those co-ops that Jen. In fact, it was the first co-op that we ever encountered that Jen said, "Yeah, this is just too mean. I, I I don't like this feeling of that. I'm always we're doomed. We'll never actually succeed. And of course, you can succeed. You, you know, it's it's against all odds that you do succeed. I love that kind of um you know underdog story. But Jen just didn't like it, so we didn't keep it. But uh, Lord of the Rings was, a, I thought, a phenomenal design. I'd love to play it right now. Uh, but anyway, now, let's um, get out. Uh, let's, let's go back to the 20th century. Actually, I guess the year 2000 is in the 20th century as well, right? But anyway, let's go back to 1999. Three games of note worth talking about. Um, one of them, several people said, hey, what about to call? To call is neat. Um, but it, there's no way it can make my top 10 prior to 2009. Because, man, on your turn, getting 10 action points to spend. They, it's funny how back then they called them, you get 10 AP, 10 action points. But they might as well said, you get 10 analysis paralysis. Because that game is designed to make you grind for a half an hour every turn trying to decide how to spend those 10 action points. 
absolutely insane. I bet you anything, if um, uh, Kramer and Kiesling were designing that game today, they would they would do it in a different way. They wouldn't do that 10 action point drop. Because, I mean, it, and plus, the default rules were terrible for two. Now, when I did a run-through for it, I showed a really nice variant that works wonderfully for two. And it, it, to a certain extent, it does kind of help mitigate the... Uh, analysis paralysis problem with that game just because it makes the game so much shorter but the rules as written the game is insane now i haven't played the other mass trilogy games java and mexica and torres the fourth in the trilogy so i i can't speak to those but to call we really like but not top 10 material um and let's see what else from two, uh 1999 lost cities I wouldn't be surprised if that did make Jen's top 10 of prior to 2009, because it's really, really brilliant. And I talked, when I did the run-through of it, I talked at length about why I have a problem with it and Jen doesn't. It's a really, really sharp game, though. We both like it. Definitely a keeper. Um, you know, And arguably, I would say maybe it is Reiner Knizia's greatest design ever. And that's saying something, because he's got a brilliant pedigree. Um, you know, at which point people are saying, hey, what about Tigris, Tigris and Euphrates? Yeah, yeah, great game. Actually, Jen loved it. She didn't mind the meanness, but it was way too mean for me. Other one, though, again, Reiner Knizia. Oh, man, what a great year for him um, in 1999 is Raw. Another game that arguably doesn't support two players, but the semi-official two-player variant we have found works phenomenally, and it's a great little auction game. Really, really sharp. like it quite a bit. Raw. Someday I'll do a run-through for it, but again, it's another one of those ones that's back in the attic in England. 1998 is on the list. One game. Samurai. Which I've done a run through four, so you can see it. Another Reiner Knizia game. Uh, another area control game that works really well with two. Very, very sharp. Um, then, 1997 and 96, I'm afraid we're going to have to skip and go all the way back to 1995. What the heck? The 90s were the decade of Knizia because in 1995, we have Medici. Again, another game that officially does not support two. What, you know, this is, um, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting. Uh, you know, I, uh, another thing that's come up after I did the 2009, prior to 2009, a lot of people say, man, games used to be so much better back then than they are now. Um, you know, the, the percentage of games, um, back in the day, you know, there were a lot less clunkers, a lot more greats. One, I don't believe that's true for a second. Um, and two, a big, big problem I've noticed when I was making this list. There were so many brilliant games back then. But back then, designers just didn't seem to give a good gosh darn about the two-player experience at all. I mean, um, Raw didn't care. Samurai? No, no, Samurai did work. But Medici didn't care. Um, Puerto Rico didn't care. I mean, they, it, you know, these days, so much more love and attention is put into two-player design. Not always, but um, you know, it's a much, much better... Uh, game landscape these days for two players than it was back in the day. But anyway, Medici, a great, interestingly, really great two-player auction. But it we, wasn't until the year 2016 that we found that out when Reiner Knizia officially revisited the design to do a new reprint of Medici that included proper two-player rules. They were really, really simple to implement, and they made the game a really good two-player auction. Why didn't he do that back in 95? Because in the 90s, nobody cared about two-player gaming. Whatevs. Um, although I'm going to undercut that now by um, skipping from... I'm going to skip 1994 and go to 1993 because I can't not talk about Magic the Gathering, of course, which is a brilliant game. It's a brilliant design. It is... Arguably the most important game in, um, you know, analog, non-digital game 
in my lifetime in terms of impact in ter- uh, 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 of the industry and design norms. I mean, you know, its its impact cannot be understated. An absolutely towering, phenomenal accomplishment from designer Richard Garfield. And you know, back in the day. Back in the mid-90s, Jen and I, we played a lot of Magic the Gathering. Um, and this was the only thing we knew of, of that existed of modern game design. And, you know, and all the other, um, you know, Magic the Gathering clones that were spawned. We played the Star Wars one. We played the Star Trek one. Played Netrunner. We played a bunch of them. Uh, but ultimately, we kind of burned out on them for reasons that I will... Let's see. Did I ever talk about that? I think I did. Didn't I talk about that at some point? I don't know. Oh, yo, that basically the modern deck builder has replaced the classic. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I talked about it in my Netrunner run through. Why um, Netrunner ultimately I find uh, inferior to Dominion, and Dominion was d- just as much of a seismic shift as Magic the Gathering was. And uh, but anyway, I still got to give props to Magic the Gathering. Um, and uh, let's move on even further into the Wayback Machine, leaving 1993 behind, moving on to 1992, folks, for a little game that Jen loves, and I think is pretty cool, but Jen loves Confusion, which is basically what would Stratego be like if um, your, your opponent could see what all your pieces are capable of, and you can't. So you sit down, um, you know, in a very strategic-like thing. You've got all these pieces that have different rules. This one can move diagonally. This one can move forward. This one can, you know, do whatever. But you're looking at the backs. You, um, I can't tell what this piece does, but my opponent can. So when it comes around to my turn, I pick one of my pieces, and let's say I try to move it forward and to the right two spaces. And then Jen, my opponent, she can see on the backside of my piece what it's actually capable of, and she says. Yeah, your piece can't do that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I, I, I didn't get to move, but I do make note of what that piece can do, and slowly, over time, you start to learn which pieces are which through this very neat deduction game. It's brilliant. Really, really clever. It got a wonderful reprint from Stronghold Games a few years ago. That's the version we have, not the original one that was printed in 1992. And it's, it's just... You know, Jen and I, we have no interest in chess-like battles for Dominion on a on a chessboard, which is basically what this is. But the central gimmick of not being able to see, know what your pieces are, and having to slowly figure it out based on intelligence you get from your opponent, who, by the way, can lie about whether your piece is capable of doing stuff or not, is so brilliant. It's it's uh, it, not brilliant enough to make the top ten, but still an absolutely phenomenal design. Um, and then the last one, I totally forgot about this. Um, because This is the oldest one. We're going to skip 1991, 1990, 89, 87, 86, 85, 84, 83, 82, going all the way back to 1981. And I forgot about it because it got reprinted in, in 2012. So if you look it up on BoardGameGeek, it says it came out in 2012, which is why I totally forgot. It might have actually made my list if I hadn't forgotten about it, that it came out in 1981. What is it? Sherlock Holmes consulting detective, which I've done a run-through for, a spoiler-free run-through for, so you can learn what it's all about. But man, that game really does put you in the shoes of Sherlock Holmes. It's a wonderful, cooperative experience decades 
before anybody thought a board game could be a cooperative experience. It's brilliant. It's innovative. It is so ahead of its time. Jen loves Sherlock Holmes. Um, it's uh, actually getting some new case files. I think this year or maybe next year. Yeah, it's getting some new case files printed. Um, absolutely brilliant. And like I said, if I'd remembered it, that it actually came out, and because again, I was relying on the the numbering system of Board Game Geek, it might have actually made the list of top ten. But anyway, folks, there was a little bit more depth into all the wonderfulness that came before we got before two thousand nine, before the year we got into board games. But you know what, folks, I'm not done yet. I'm going to be back with another. Um, game list to make up for everything else that was so short. So hold on. This is going to be a bit of a surprise. Okay, everybody. So this is going to be a little odd, uh, but I'm going to hit a Q&A question before we move on to the actual Q&A section. Because in last month's podcast, somebody wrote in, Dave wrote in and asked, Hey, could you look at the Board Game Geek Top 50 and just do a quick run-through of the Top 50 with your opinions? And I'm like, yeah, sure, I could do that. But at the time we recorded last month's podcast, our internet was down. And so I literally could not do that. And so I said, hey, Dave, if you do, in fact, listen to this podcast, write the request in again, and I'll do it next month. And Dave did. Okay, Dave, you ask, you receive. So let's jump right into it. So, anybody can play along at home. Go to BoardGameGeek.com, and up at the top, there is Browse. And under that, under Database, there is Games. Apparently, in the BoardGameGeek database, there are 87,420 games that have been ranked. And so you choose that, and you'll be taken to that list of 87,000 games. And of course, I'm only going to talk about the first 50. These are actually, the list by default is sorted. Um, you know, and this is based off user votes on BoardGameGeek. And apparently there's a lot of voodoo that goes into these rankings. Because it's not just a straight average that, you know, if 10 people all give it a 10 and one person gives it a 2 that it'll just average those out. There's actually um, some stuff that goes on behind the scenes with this general ranking where you know they, they kind of auto-detect and throw away shill votes and they put in some normalization and whatnot. So I, nobody knows exactly how this, this list is inspired by the users of BoardGameGeek, but the actual... Raw nuts and bolts of it are, well, only Scott Alden and his crew know. They, the people who run Board Game Geek. So, <clears throat> is it a true, or, you know, is, is it a true objective list of the 50 greatest board games of all time? No, of course not. But it's a really cool list. There's a lot of really interesting stuff on it. And, um, as per Dave's request, we are now gonna scroll down to number 50, and I'm just gonna blitz through them really, really quick. If, for no other reason than just to have some filler, since I didn't have any games of interest, and I completely ignored two top tens. And, spoiler alert, there aren't very many Q&As this month either, but you'll hear about those in a bit. So let's get going with number 50. Tigris and Euphrates. I felt like I just talked about that a few minutes ago from Reiner Knizia. What do we think? Well, I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. It's a brilliant design. I mean, and I think while I'm often quick to say Lost Cities is his, is his greatest, most perfect design game, a lot of people would argue, nope, Tigris and Euphrates is. And I wouldn't, I would not argue that with them because that's a perfectly reasonable stance to take. It recently got a reprint. 
with some really nice uh, upgraded materials. It is a game of area domination in the uh, ancient um, Tigers and Euphrates Valley, or the Cradle of Civilization. And um, it's a really, really sharp game, and it's very vicious. Uh, the, the central crux of it, I mean, we've only played it a couple of times, and it was back... In 2010, when we were first getting into games and we were trying everything under the sun, and we didn't know if we liked aggressive in-your-face games or not, Tigers and Euphrates is the game that taught me, yeah, I don't like doing this. I absolutely hate making this move that's going to cause an internal revolt in your kingdom, or an external revolt. I always forget the difference. But, um, yeah, and it was funny... Because as we were playing this game, I'm like, yeah, I really am just not enjoying this. And Jen's like, oh, I so enjoy this! And that was when I learned that she was more of a shark than I will ever be. Uh, <laughs> she says she's a shark in a kitten's body. For um, oh, oh, that's kind of spoilers. Um, actually, now that I think of it, well, you know what? Uh, people who know what I'm saying will get the reference, and people who don't, it's I didn't spoil it. So there you go. Um, but anyway, Jen is a shark in a in a in a kitten's body. Is all I'm saying. So uh, that was actually very educational. It was one of the early games that we tried because I knew back in 2010 it was one of the best games ever designed, and it arguably is. Uh, number 50 on the list, Tigers and Euphrates. Then on to number 49, Fields of Arl, um, which is, or Arla Erda, I believe in the original Deutsch. I have done a run-through for it, so you can see what we thought there. Really, really sharp game. Very odd game. You know, basically all the depth and complexity and richness of an Agricola or a Caverna from designer Uwe Rosenberg, but for two players only. And that's, I think it's actually really surprising that the game has ranked so high on this list because that you would think limiting it to two players would um, keep so many board game geek voters from even playing it or ever ranking it at all. Now, and maybe that's the case. Maybe the only people who are playing it are people who love, love, love two-player games, and that's why it ranks so high, because there are so few games that are this heavy and this deep that are for two players only. Me and Jen, we definitely liked it, but as is so typical for Uwe Rosenberg design these days, we found it to be a bit too wide open and sandboxy for our taste, and we would rather just play Agricola when it boils right down to it. But still, a really sharp design. Really liked it. Uh, number 49, Fields of Arla. Or Fields of Arla. All right, <clears throat> 48 is Dominion, which is... Just an absolutely brilliant game. Um, it's one of my very few games I rate as a 9 on the 1 to 10 scale of Board Game Geek. And, you know, both Jen and I absolutely love it. We love all the expansions that come out, some more than others. I'm hoping, before too long, to actually do a run-through. I'm just waiting. Um, I've got an order that should be coming sometime this month that includes Feast of Odin and... Oh, what's Arkham Horror, the, the, the new Arkham Horror card cooperative game, and the, um, the new uh, reprints, because Dominion recently got a reprint, and so you could get upgrade packs to your original version of, of Dominion. As soon as they'll show up, I'm doing a run-through of Dominion, and I will demonstrate it. I'm thinking the way I'm going to do a run-through for Dominion is take one type of card from each of the expansions. Although I don't know if I... Are there... There might be too many expansions to do that. I don't know. We'll see. But I really want to show off everything the game has to offer with all the expansions. So that'll be interesting. But long story short, what's my opinion? Jen and I both love it. To this day, I still, I would still argue it is the best deck builder available on the market. And I would also argue that it is much more thematic than it is given credit for. And for that, you can go back and listen to my very, very first podcast ever where I talked about that. 
Okay, number 47, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. I've done a run-through for that. What did I say in a nutshell? Madness and Mansion 1st Edition, a much better game. Uh, This is crazy. I I mentioned this earlier in this podcast that Runebound 3rd Edition was, in my opinion, from a design perspective, it made design changes that weakened the overall game. And Mansions of Madness did the same thing. I love the digital app integration. There was a lot of really cool stuff. But on the whole... The, uh, you know, some of the streamlining design decisions that were made for this, like Runebound, really weakened the overall experience. And I think it basically took some of the bite out. Um, and so, uh, the second edition, meh. First edition, yeah. So, 46, Battlestar Galactica. What's my opinion? I've never played it, and I very much doubt I ever will. I'm certainly interested to try it, but my understanding is it's like a three-hour minimum game. Uh Uh-uh. As much as I love Battlestar Galactica, I love this. I love the original show and I love the reboot, but I can't imagine we'll ever get this played. Not the least of which is because it doesn't support two players. Oops. Number forty-five, uh, Lords of Waterdeep, which is a phenomenal game. I I think I yeah I I listed this in my top ten gateway games, and I would certainly stand by that. If I ever do a list of games. Someday I might do a top 10. These are the games you can use to convert video game fans into board game fans. This would definitely make that list really, really sharp. <clears throat> Better with more players, but still works well with two. And the thing I love about more than anything else, you know, the worker placement is pretty straightforward. It works well, but it has this one interesting twist <clears throat> that there's one spot you can place your workers that lets you place them twice, at, you know, place them a second time at the end of the round. That plus the intrigue cards that, um, instead of attacking other players, let you choose which other player to help. These are both brilliant things. It's a wonderful thematic exercise as well. It's just really, really sharp. Very, very clever. Really like a lot. Lords of Waterdeep. And Jen loves it. All right, on to number 44, Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures Game. Well, anything I would have to say about that, I said in my Star Trek Attack Wing run-through, so you can go check that out. Long story short, neat, clever, would never want to play it because neither Jen nor I want to blow each other out of the sky and way too much dice rolling for our tastes. Um, you know, <clears throat> there are some games that Jen and I do enjoy that are having us attacking each other out and out. This would not be one of them. So just a pass. Although those miniatures are really, really cool looking. On number 43, Five Tribes. Oh man, can we just skip this? I really don't want to go down this rabbit hole again. Suffice to say, brilliant Rondell, or I'm sorry, a brilliant Moncala, um, freeform Moncala game, less than ideal with two players. Enough said. Um, I don't want to go down to any of the controversial elements of that again. But really sharp. Oh, brilliant and lovely, colorful game too. Lots to recommend there. I'm not surprised at all it ranks so high. On to number 42, Dominion Intrigue. Okay, now this drives me nuts. Dominion Intrigue and Dominion should be the same gosh darn entry on this list. So, um, number 48 was Dominion. Uh Uh-uh, we're ignoring that. Um, Everything I would say about Dominion Intrigue, I'd say about Dominion. But, uh, because, it's just crazy. I mean, it drives me nuts. That means I I have to roll back up on the list. I have to go back to number 51. Or should I? Eh. Eh, who am I to say? No, 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 I'll just live with it. Number 42, Dominion Intrigue. Everything I just said about Dominion is equally true for Dominion Intrigue. It drives me nuts. I, I think this list is weakened by the fact that you have weird things like this. I'm sure this won't be the first weirdness on it, but... Anyway, moving on to number 41, Race for the Galaxy. 
I just talked about that, I feel like, about a half an hour ago or so. Brilliant game. Absolutely wonderful. Love the two-player-specific rules. Hate the hieroglyphics. And that's what made us get rid of it. Plus... Ultimately, we liked Roll for the Galaxy so much more. And not in, and not least of which because, hey, they didn't use icons, they used text. I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. A word is worth a thousand icons. And, um, yeah. Number 40 is El Grande. El Grande, when I did my top 10 games prior to 2009, a lot of people said I really missed, I really blew it by not including El Grande. I don't know. I've never played it. I, it's very likely I never will play it because my understanding is it's not a very good two-player game, which is not surprising because it's area control. It's arguably the greatest area control game ever designed. It may very well be, but if it's not good for two players, it's not good for me and Jen, so I don't have much to say about it. Then on to number 39, Patchwork, which, oh man... That's a neat, neat, neat little two-player game, and I very much regret having gotten rid of it. I got rid of it a while ago because a friend of mine really wanted to play with his girlfriend, and um, so I was happy. Okay, well, you know, I know this cottage garden is coming out soon, and I bet you Jen and I will enjoy the cottage garden theme more um, than Patchwork. So, yeah, go ahead and take it and enjoy it with your girlfriend, and we'll get Cottage Garden. Now, cut forward, fast forward to a few months later... Cottage Garden is neat, but it's so much lighter and fluffier. We really miss Patchwork. And ironically, he's broken up with his girlfriend. Ah! So I really need to circle back around and say, hey, can I get that Patchwork back? I bet you're not playing it much anymore, are you? Uh, but brilliant, really little um, Tetris-style tile-laying game with some really neat economic engine stuff going on as well. Highly recommend it. You can watch my run-through. Uh, let's see. And then moving on to 38, Roll for the Galaxy. Wow. What is that? That's 1, 2, 3. 41 was Race. Four, 38 was Roll. Now, me, I would rank Roll a lot higher, but apparently Board Game Geek agrees. Roll for the Galaxy trumps Race for the Galaxy. And um, you know, this is in Jen's top 10 of all time. It's in my top 20 of all time. It's, it's the best dice rolling game. If I ever do a top 10 dice rollers, it'll, I'm sure it'll be my number one. It's absolutely brilliant, phenomenal game. Um, heck, just talking about it, I bet she is making Jen want to play it. Yep, she just nodded her head. Stop talking about it. You're just making me want to play it. Um, so let's just move on to number 37, Dominant Species, which is a brilliant, brilliant area control warfare. It's a warfare game, um, but it's a, warf- it's, a, it's a war between mosquitoes and um, marmosets. And gecko lizards. Uh, what, which is, that's not true at all. It's basically a, it's, it's an area control game where early species are trying to become the dominant species of the planet. Mammals versus reptiles versus birds versus bugs versus something else. I forget what. And it's a brilliant design. Cannot fault it. But it is incredibly nasty, incredibly cutthroat, incredibly long, and ridiculously fiddly. It's so fiddly, it almost requires you have a... Um, a spe- I mean, I've seen people have made um, special... Spre- basically, every time... Uh, there, there are ways that you can change the board that changes the value of everything. And you're constantly having to reevaluate the value of the individual hexes that players are vying for control of. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I've done a run-through if you want to see more. Long story short, brilliant. I think it certainly deserves its position on this list, but it's definitely not one for me and Jen at 37 is dominant species. Then on to 36, Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition, a game I will never, ever play, considering it takes six hours and is six long hours of intergalactic intrigue, 
um, espionage, backstabbing, and out-and-out warfare. That just sounds like a god-awful experience to me. I can't imagine ever wanting to play anything like that. It's the very definition of anti-me and Jen. Twilight Imperium. But on to number 35, this is a phenomenal game, Concordia. Matt Gertz, greatest design of all time, and I love that every year he seems to be putting out more and more maps. That I can't wait for the new map we just got that actually adds... See, does it? No, no, I'm thinking of the... What is the new one at? Oh, no, no. The new one is just the smallest, tightest map to date. So I'm really looking forward to trying that um, because uh, it's, it's just an absolutely phenomenal game. Um, we absolutely love it. <sighs> yeah, I, all I have to do is give my opinion, right? We love it. You knew that from watching the run-through. If you want to know why, go watch the run-through. Absolutely phenomenal game. I mean, it's, this should rate much, much higher as far as I'm concerned. It's just about near perfect. Concordia. Then on to 34, Eldritch Horror. Eldritch Horror made my top 10 games I'm sad that I got rid of because we didn't like it. Because we didn't like it, but not for um, quality reasons. It's a very, very quality game. It does it, it does what it sets out to do brilliantly, create these rich, evocative, narrative-driven, event-driven games that Jen and I just found kind of dull because the decision-making was kind of on the light side. Um, a lot of it was just, you know, Luck mitigation with uh, with uh, with a infinite variety of uh, it's it, it's 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 the height, and I mean this in a good way of Ameritrash style design, and that's just a design style that we don't appreciate. So even if it's the best of that type of thing, it's just not something we particularly enjoyed. And you can find out why in my run through for Eldritch Horror. Then on to number thirty three, Food Chain Magnet, which I did a run through for. This was one of the weirdest run throughs I ever did because I did the run through not having actually played the game. I've never played Food Chain Magnet, and I never will because it is an incredibly cutthroat, vicious knife fight of a game where players are trying to one-up each other, vying for control over all these residential suburbs um, as they try to build their fast food empires and sell burgers and soft drinks to everybody in town and undercut the competition. Really brilliant design, but way too mean, way too long, way too sandboxy. Um, So, not for us. Then on to 32, Voyages of Marco Polo, which is a wonderful dice worker placement game. You know, we really need to play this again. I haven't played it much since we first got it, because, of course, that's just the nature of our existence. We play games a few times, we do a run-through, and then it goes up on the shelf, never to be played again. So sad. And this, what this game is known for is you know, there's lo- everybody, every player, when you start, you get your own. You can be Marco Polo, or you can be Marco Polo's dad, if I recall correctly. Or you can be Kublai Khan. You can be all these different real historical characters from that time in history, um, you know, trying to make your fortunes on the Spice Road by doing dice worker placement. And it's very, very sharp. But the thing that's most interesting about it is, whichever character you take, you take, you get a really super powerful special power. Any one of these special powers, one would argue, are so powerful they're broken. But the thing is, everybody gets a broken, over-the-top special power. So everybody feels that the one thing they're good at, they're amazing at. And, I mean, you can get so much replay value out of this game because of the different combinations of special powers and how they play off against each other. And the board itself is very is variable. So it's, it's a brilliant masterclass in how to create really nice variable setup and uh, absolutely delightful dice worker placement game. 32, Voyages of Marco Polo. Then on to number 31, Orléans, which is a phenomenal game. It's in my top 20 of all time now with the, um, with the Invasion expansion that came out, which turned it into a cooperative game. But even still, even the base game is absolutely wonderful. The, um, the, 
the it is it is the de facto bag builder game where over the course of the game you are getting all these workers throwing them into a bag in the beginning of every round you reach into the bag draw randomly what workers you're going to have available to you this turn so that you can build an engine to get more workers to get points in lots of different ways it's an absolutely phenomenal game love it to bits and you know always want more that new expansion for it came out can't wait to try it number 31 orleans number 30 Kalis. what do we think Brilliant game. Um, this is the game that put worker placement on the map. It wasn't the first worker placement game, but it is the, but worker placement, which is now by far the most popular. Uh, is that true? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. It's kind of a gut feeling, but I bet you if I did the research, it would prove out that, um, worker placement is the most popular Euro style game mechanism today, and Kalis is what made that possible. Other games came afterwards and built on that, but Kalis, uh, it was one of a kind, it's a brilliant design, and it's just set, it's so heartbreaking that it is just so cutthroat and mean that Jen and I will never play that game again. But why should we? We've got Kalis Magna Carta. Number 29, Dead of Winter. Uh, one we'll probably never play because Jen doesn't care about the zombies, nor would she care about the Prisoner's Dilemma style decisions you have to make. And I'll be honest, I'm just not a really big fan of all the dice-rolling Ameritrash-style stuff. So, you know, it's three strikes and you're out. But, I, I, yeah, I'm sure it's great. I mean, look how high it is on the list. It's got to be great, right? But certainly not for me and Jen. Something I, I still, to this day, get a lot of people requesting to do a run-through. Sorry, folks, it's never going to happen. Let's move on to number 28, Seven Wonders, which is in my top ten of all time. Actually, for the longest time, it was literally, my totally randomly, my number seven. I don't know if that's still the case anymore, but it is a brilliant card drafting game. And again, you know, it's a civilization game, and it has warfare between players, but it does it in such a way that it uh, doesn't have to be nasty and all about players destroying each other and ripping each other up. Uh, you know, I can only say to designers out there wanting to try to um, make inroads into the Care Bear market, which is typified by players like me and Jen, who like to build things instead of destroy stuff, study this game. It's brilliant. Um, it's weird. A lot of people say it's a really great gateway game. I would say it's a terrible gateway game because it has so much iconography and it's kind of hard to teach for somebody who's never played a game before. I mean, it can work, but there are much better examples. But still, Seven Wonders, absolutely phenomenal game. Definitely deserves to be at this upper echelon. And then number 27, which is also in my top 10 of all time, Keyflower. Amazing auction slash worker placement game where your workers um, they work as workers to do stuff for you, but they are also the monetary units you bid on to get the worker placement spaces that you need to place your workers. It's a brilliant, brilliant game. Absolutely phenomenal. Every expansion that's come out for it has made it even better. Love, love Keyflower to death. 26. Wow, talk about a fast riser. Is this the first game from 2016? 2016, let's search. Um, yes, it is. N um, Streaking, oh no no no! I'm sorry. At 47, we had Mansion of Madness Second Edition, but you know, I mean, it is a Second Edition, so I don't really consider that the same. But Terraforming Mars is a totally new original title, came out this year, and has already rocketed up to number 26. That's a big deal, um, and with good reason. I mean, Jen and I, we have played it. 
It is a brilliant engine-building game. Um, you know, I, I, I can certainly understand why for a lot of people it could be a race for the galaxy killer. Uh, it, it basically, the game is just this big, gigantic, thick deck of cards. Every time you play, you're going to get a different combination of cards. All Every single card in this game does something interesting and unique and different. And the you know every time you play, you're going to get your own special corporation with their own special power. You're going to get a bunch of cards. There's a bunch of different... Um, paths to victory and it's it's a brilliant design and it's unfortunate that it is just riddled with player versus player attacking each other stealing from each other destroying each other's stuff it's heartbreaking uh, because it's so mean it would definitely make it on my top 10 games that i'm heartbroken that we got rid of because they were too mean because it's absolutely brilliant I'll be trying to get a run-through for it done before the end of the month, so you can see. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's a brilliant game. It, I, I don't think it's at all unreasonable that it is rocketed so high, so quick, because it's really well-designed. Just it's a shame it's not for me and Jen. Number 26, Terraforming Mars. And then on to number 25, Time Stories, which is a wonderful experience. And um, you know, if you ever watched my original run-through, you remember I complained vociferously about the absolutely piss-poor two-player rules that it came with. And it's funny. I mean, after I complained about them so much, the developers, they post on board game, well, here's some alternate rules. They were also absolutely terrible. And, and you know, it, I, I guess I don't blame the developers. Originally, this game, for it's for the first six months before it came out, it was listed as a three-to-five-player game. Or no, three or four. That it didn't support two players at all. At the last minute, they put in two-player rules. They clearly didn't care about two-player, but they realized, we better make this two-player compliant, because there's a lot of people out there who only play two-player. And this is a great game. And more people should see it. But they did really, really poor two-player rules. So actually, it's interesting. I love this game, Jen. I, some of our... Our most fond, fun gaming of the last couple of years is playing this through all the different modules that have come out for it so far. But I still rank it very, very low. I rank it as a 7, even though it we it's a, it's a 9 in terms of the fun we've had. But I rank it a 7 because of its poor, terrible two-player rules. Now, we have ultimately come up with our own official house variant, um, which we use, and it works really well. And it's just... It's... It's ridiculous to me that um, they, they continue to stick with the official two-player rules, but with with our two-player rules, we have found that it works phenomenally well, is engrossing, and um, you know very, very captivating. Just a lot of fun. It's incredibly light. In fact, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, it's incredibly Ameritrashy. It, you know, it typifies everything we hate about Ameritrash, but here it's done so well because of one neat trick where players are recruited as the storytellers. And it's absolutely brilliant. I've talked about it at length in my run-through for it, so you can go see more. But number 25, I do think it's deserved, even though I personally rank the game very low for kind of odd reasons, uh, time stories. On number 24, Zulk in the Mayan Calendar. I believe this is in Jen's top 10 of all time. And uh, it's in my top 30. Really, really brilliant game. Yes, the big spinning gears on the board are a gimmick, but they are a gimmick that works and creates an incredible worker placement game that does something... Unlike any other worker placement game out there, it simulates or it um, it adds into the simu- the economic simulation the concept of time. The longer you have your worker do work on his worker placement space, the more he will do, and that's incredibly. It's a it's a simple twist. It's a simple addition to worker placement that really puts it head and shoulders above all the other worker placement games out there. So I think it definitely 
deserves to be this high. I mean, actually, it's interesting. Has there been anything that I've seen so far, because I'm up to 25 now, that I don't think deserves to be here? Let's see. Well, I can't speak about Battlestar Galactica. And... No, I think this is, or, and I can't speak about Twilight Imperium, but this is a perfectly reasonable list. I don't, I don't think, I, uh, Dead of Winter, yeah, I wonder about that one. From, I've never played it, so I can't, but from what I know, I don't know if it deserves to be number 29, the 29th best game of all time. Um, but I've never played it, so who am I to say? But anyway, number 24, Soul Can Mind Calendar, yeah, it deserves to be here. Number 23, Lahav. Hey, you know what? I just talked about that at length a little while ago, um, so I'm not going to mention it again. But I'd say it deserves to be in the top 50, yeah. Brass, I just talked about that a little while ago, too. Also deserves to be here. Rob, number 21, Robinson Crusoe, Adventure on the Cursed Island. Ah. You know, we played it. I thought it was brilliant. And we traded it away as fast as we possibly could because it's another one of those cooperative games that's just cruel and unyielding and never gives you a moment's respite, and Jen hates that. And I, as brilliant as I thought that the uh, card-driven event system was, you know, this whole notion of if you, you you draw a card, it's an event, you make a choice, and then that is, and then the card goes back later into the event deck, and there are going to be consequences for your choice at some unknown time in the future. That is brilliant. That is absolutely stellar. I love that. But what I didn't love about it was that the the results of your careful, considerate planning, um, you know, as, as you tried to work out every single thing, ultimately came down to luck, not luck of the die, although there's dice rolling in this game too, but luck of the card draw. Um, I would have liked to see a little bit less randomness in the game. Now, here's the thing. It just recently got reprinted. I picked up a copy of the new reprint at Essen. Jen and I, we're going to go back and try this again. We'll see if we have mellowed out. We'll see if Jen's gotten a, li- um, a little bit more... Accepting of unrelenting co-opness. We'll see if I've gotten a little bit more accepting of the, uh, um, the, 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 you know, the, the random elements of it. So watch this space. We'll be revisiting Robinson Crusoe in the coming months. On number 20, code names. Yeah, that's reasonable. That's, uh, the one party game we own. In large part because it's a great little two player cooperative game. But I have actually gotten to play it with more players, and it's a blast. It's absolutely phenomenal. In fact, uh, this winter, we might be playing some six-player of it when um, some friends who have some friends of friends are coming out to visit. So we might, I imagine we'll be probably playing Codenames with, with, with them when they show up for Christmas. Uh, great game. Definitely deserves to be in the top 20 at number 20. Number 19, Android Netrunner. Uh, I just kind of talked about that earlier. It's a brilliant game. It's, it's asymmetry is absolutely phenomenal. And back in the day, I thought it was great. It's not something we'd want to play now because of the drip feed nature of it. And again, this is something I talked about in my run through for it. But I, I think it's reasonable that it's in the top 20. It's, it's that good. Number 18, Eclipse. Ah, oh, we've tried to play this a couple of times. Um, because it's a 4X game. It's, uh, what's it? It's a space empire building game of the 4Xs of expand, exploit, no, explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. And it's that exterminate that kills us. Actually, that's not true. 
for the longest time, I always said, you know what? I, 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 if I could ever find a 4X game that doesn't include the exterminate, i.e., oh, yeah, we get to build our space empires, but we don't just, yeah, we get to exp- explore this, the galaxy and then expand our empire and then exploit what we've discovered. And then we just don't have to exterminate. We don't have to fight each other. That'll be the perfect game for me because Eclipse does make you fight. Sooner or later, you're going to fight. Um, so it, it's a no-go for us. And I've been saying forever, yeah, maybe we'll find one. Recently, I did, and it wasn't for us either. And you'll find a run-through for that coming probably this week, in fact. Um, but it turns out the Explorer doesn't work for us either. And I didn't realize that about Eclipse at the time. I was so um, hung up on other stuff. But yeah, um, too in-your-face fighty fight, too long. Brilliant game, but not for us, is Eclipse at number 18. On to number 17, Power Grid. This totally deserves to be here. It's a modern classic. Um, you know, and I, yeah, it, it definitely deserves number seven. It, it could deserve to be even higher. I think it might deserve to be in the top ten games of all time on Board Game Geek. It's kind of a shame that it's been pushed out by some of these other less worthy games, in my opinion. The, all that said, not for me and Jen. Terrible two-player experience. I mentioned this earlier. Back in the day, developers just did not put the love and attention into two-player that they do these days. And I'm so happy that I didn't discover designer board games back in the early aughts. Because we might not have stuck with it. I'm so glad we stumbled across them in 2009 when the renaissance of two-player specific finally came into effect. But yeah, number 17, Power Grid, definitely deserves it. Number 16, Blood Rage. Don't know, never played it, never will. I'm sure it's great. Eric Lang is a, is a wonderful person, an incredibly clever, brilliant designer. So I'm sure he deserves it, but I have no idea if, this deser- if, this, if it's good enough to be at number 16. Or if it's riding the hype wave, I don't know. Uh, but number 15, Star Wars Imperial Assault. Man, not a fan. Not a fan at all. And you know, I look at games like this, which is just a bunch of plastic, a bunch of read cards, a bunch of Byzantine little rules that are impossible to keep track of, but are there to help enhance the narrative. Um, you know, the, again, typical Ameritrash style stuff, and I just don't get it. But I accept that it's wonderful if that's what you like. And so I will accept that it deserves to be this high on the list. I don't know that it does, because, man, it just... it. I, I look at that design, I just don't see anything good in it. Um, because it's just so far removed from what, what Jen and I consider to be the hallmarks of a good design, of a good game. But, you know, it's the same thing. I do not... I can't watch um, a, a professional sports match and enjoy it. I, I, I understand everybody else enjoys it. Uh, you know, that game of basketball or football or whatever it might be. I just look at it and stare blank saying, what is the point of this? And I, I look at Star Wars Imperial Assault and say, what is the point of this? I don't get it. So, no comment. Number 14, War of the Rings, second edition. Never played it. War game, never will. Got nothing to say. Number 13, Mage Knight, the board game. Um, ah, I did a run through for it. What I said then still stands. I stand by it. Two, you know, it is an Ameritrash game for Eurofans. It is a brilliant, elegant, lovely, smart, clever deck builder design completely buried under an avalanche of needless, persnickety little rules. Um, And I hate it. I understand for some people that's the joy that this game gives you of navigating that Byzantine maze of rules and exceptions to rules. But for me and Jen, forget about it. Just do not like. So number 13, Mage Knight the Board Game, not for us. Number 12, Through the Ages, Story of Civilization. I talked about that earlier. Um, It's a great game. 
I'd probably still have it if it wasn't for Nations, which killed it. Is Nations in the top 100? Nations. Yes, it is. Nations sitting at number 70. I can only hope it rightfully continues to climb and eventually eclipses through the ages. Um, because for me, it's the better game. But that's just for me and Jen. Number 11, Agricola. My number two game of all time. So sad that it has been pushed out of the top 10. That is a travesty, particularly considering what pushed it out, which is, I'm looking ahead, it's at number 6. Um, still, one of the best games ever. Amazing worker play. No, actually, no. It's an okay worker placement game. It's an amazing um, game because of its cards. Because I've talked about this at great length, particularly in my... What, what, whatever year, what did Caverna came out in, and when I did my top 10 follow up for the year 2013, I talked about what makes Agricola so special. And it is special. Jen, I both love it. It's my number two. It might be her number one. I'm not really quite sure where it sits for her, but, oh, it, it breaks my heart a little bit that it's not in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. That's just wrong. But at number 10, this makes me very happy. Castles and Burgundy, which very it is Steffenfeld's greatest game design. It is so brilliant, and it deserves to be here in the top ten. It deserves to be even higher, but still, I'm just happy uh, it, it, it made the list. Number nine, Puerto Rico. Yep, I talked about this earlier in the run through. Um, I, I think this deserves to be at number nine. I think that's reasonable. This is interesting. Number eight, Seven Wonders Duel. Talk about a rocket. Um, you know, it came out in 2015 and immediately shot all the way up to number eight, eclipsing its precursor, Seven Wonders, which is sitting at number 28. 20 points higher on the list is Seven Wonders Duel. Does it deserve it? Is that right? Bearing in mind that this was not a game for me and Jen, because again, it's another example of a game that's just way too mean. Here's the thing. If Jen and I didn't mind stealing from each other and destroying each other's stuff, the, I, I would have. Th this would probably be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would say it is maybe better than Seven Wonders, and Seven Wonders is in my top ten games of all time, except for the fact that it added all this needless, pointless carnage that wasn't in the original Seven Wonders. I wish, wish, wish. That when Bruno Cathala got together with, um, oh, original Seven Wonders designer Antoine Bauza, I can only assume it was Bruno's influence that brought in all the stealing and the attacking and the destroying. Um, because it just ruined it for us. But I do think it's reasonable that it's, it is that good. It is that brilliant. And yeah, I don't have a problem. I know some people look at this being so high and rocketing so high that there's something fundamentally wrong and broken about Board Game Geek's ranking system. I don't think so. I think Seven Wonders Duel is that good. It is that near perfect if you're that type of player. Jen and I aren't, so we had to say goodbye to it. And it breaks my heart, but I think it's reasonable that it's at number eight. Number seven, Scythe, a game we will never play. Um, and it's designer, Jamie Stegmaier, man, he pushed really hard to try to convince me. I mean, he actually talked about how he was actually thinking of me and Jen while he was designing the game. Um, you know, me and Jen as a stand-in for all the Care Bear players of the universe, trying to come up with a way that you could have a game that has mechs battling each other and destroying each other and, um, you know, chasing each other out and stealing stuff from each other and yet could still be enjoyed by Care Bears. I don't know. I will never try uh, because I have studied this game. I've read the rules for it several times now. I've watched a bunch of run-throughs for it. I can see its brilliance, and I can certainly see it'll be something Jen and I will never, ever play. Uh, um, 
So I can't say if it, if it should be number seven of all time. But considering I, I've disagreed with very few of these calls so far, I'm inclined to agree it must be just that good. Let's move on to number six. This one, oh, it's a, oh, it's a, it, it doesn't belong here. Number six is Caverna, the Cave Farmers, which is the one that pushed Agricola out of the top ten. Caverna is great. I love a lot of the stuff it does. I love a lot of the additions it made to the um, Agricola formula. I More than anything else, this is the most brilliant thing it does. It takes those cards, which were kind of an abstract concept, and actually makes them a concrete thing that exists in the world. That is brilliant. I would love to see that retrofitted back into Agricola. You know, And I love the fact that it um, makes... Uh, family strategy a little bit less dominant by giving you less points for family members. That's brilliant too. That's something that I would love to see rolled back into Agricola. But it ripped out the heart and soul of what makes Agricola truly phenomenal. And again, if you go back and watch my follow-up, Top 10 of 2013, I talk about why. But long story short, I guess it deserves to be here. But the that's the thing. It's like having Dominion and Dominion Intrigue on the list. They're the same gosh darn game. They're just variants of each other. They should be in the same spot. I believe Agricola and Caverna should share number six on this list. I believe that would be appropriate. Because Caverna is just the sandbox version of Agricola. Um... Anyway, so that's my feeling on that. Number five, Star Wars Rebellion. Another bullet screaking up to the top. You know... Again, it's not one Gen I'll ever play, but from what I've seen, it looks really, really smart. It looks, you know, as Tom Bassel loves to say, Star Wars in a box. Probably nobody does it better. I think, I don't know if it deserves to be the fifth best of all time, but I bet you it is really good. I bet you it deserves to be in the top 20. Um, number four, Terra Mystica. Smart, smart game. I talked about why it doesn't work for me in Gen. Not of good two-player design. We did not feel it was very well designed for two-player. And a lot of people disagree with us, but... For us, it was it's the opposite of a sandbox, and it's a little bit too pre-scripted. A lot of people say it's not. I will defer to them because we've only played it a couple of times, but a couple of times was enough for us. We're never going back. But I definitely agree it's brilliant. It's reasonable that it's in the top ten, I think. Number three, Twilight Struggle. I don't know. I'll never get to play it because Jen will never play it with me. Um, it's a war game. She doesn't like the subject matter. And it's way too long. There's a lot of reasons we'll never play that game. But I think it's reasonable. That it's it's here. I I have no problem with it being this high because I I even not having played it, I can just read the rules. I can see what it does, and I can appreciate how brilliant it is. Number two, this is another one that is wrong. Number two is through the ages, a new story of civilization, and number twelve is through the ages, a story of civilization. Why are there two separate entries on Board Game Geek for this? This is absolutely ridiculous. These things should be combined into one entry. Um, in the same way that Agricola and Caverna should be one entry, Dominion and Dominion Intrigue should be one entry. Um, through the Ages, a story of civil, you know, a new story of civilization, which basically could just be called Through the Age in Fourth Edition. It's the same basic game. They made some tweaks here and there. It's the same game, and I think they both deserve to be here because it is a brilliant game. I think it's reasonable. I still think Nations is better, but that's number two, and then number one, Pandemic Legacy. Season 1. I have talked at great length about that in the past. All I will say is, agree, number one of all time. Yeah, baby, yeah! I don't know if you could hear that, Jen, shouting from the uh, kitchen. Yeah, baby, yeah. (laughs) Okay, um, there you go, Dave. I thought this would be a bit quicker, but what was I thinking? 
Okay, folks. Um, I've been able to stretch long enough now. Let's move on to some Q&A. I think Jen's ready to get on the mic. Okay, everybody, and now to finish off the podcast, we will do the monthly Q&A. And surprisingly, this month there were very few Qs. We only got nine emails, and unlike in the past, we don't have half of them filled with like ten sub-questions in each one. So this is actually going to be pretty quick relative to what we've been doing for the last few months. Are you ready, Honey Pie? I am ready. <clears throat> okay. Well, then, let's just jump right into it, starting with the game-related ones, and then afterwards we'll do the non-game-related ones. And, well, I've already done one of these four earlier in the podcast, so let's just go to the other three, starting with this question from Chris, who asks, At what point does a game's art and visual presentation negatively affect your interest in a game? Given how the hobby has grown in the past few years, why do we still see games with such bland or thematically lacking visuals? Or have we just been spoiled? Honey Pie, what do you think? At what point does art and visual presentation negatively affect your interest in a game? Um... I don't know how to answer that. Really, is it like a percentage? Or what's yes, <laughs> define an exact percentage point, up to two decimal places. <laughs> okay, well, I would say that my visual enjoyment of a game is probably between twenty and thirty percent of the game. Of your overall appreciation of the game? Yeah, I think so, actually. Because okay. Because you spend an awful lot of the game staring at, you know, the pieces or the the board or the components or whatever. And if it's nicely done, then I would say it would appreciate it would increase my appreciation and enjoyment twenty to thirty percent. So to Chris's question, which was more on the negative side, you're kind of skewing positive there. He okay. was more asking, well, at what point does ugly or bland arc make you hate the game? Well, I would basically say what you're saying is the worst the art of a game could possibly be, the absolute worst of the worst. Um, if the rest of the game is still great you're still going to, on the whole, love the game. You're, it's still going to be a 70% success. I think so, yes. Okay. That's fair enough. Yeah, you're right. It is a tough question to answer. I mean, it's so crazy subjective. I mean, I have to admit, my inclination is to kind of skew more towards... I mean, honestly, I don't think bad art or bland art or, considering the number of prototypes we play, the complete and total absence <laughs> of art, exactly. as is often the case with the prototypes for Kickstarter we play, I don't think that affects me in the slightest in a negative way. I do not... I mean, I can't think of a game where we have ever said, oh my god, this is such an eyesore, I just don't want to play this game. I don't think that's ever happened. And we played some eyesores. Yeah. I mean, uh, the only game that actually springs to mind, which is uh, the art where I just really didn't... Do you like it? Was the uh, rock and roll one? Oh, thrash and roll. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which I thought which the I, game was great. Yeah, and you know, and and it's well done art, but yeah. it's a particular style of art yeah. that is kind of uh, marmite, Pretty. I suppose. You know, <laughs> love it or hate it, kind of a thing. Yeah, but yeah. even that, I was still definitely willing to play the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And exactly. Enjoyed the game. Yep. So, I mean, I would certainly say it's kind of what you're saying. You know, good art or great art or evocative art or inviting art or whatever, or art that we like, enhances the game. But I don't think I've ever seen it detract. I mean, oh, like... Okay. like oh, wait, you, wait, wait. 
Okay. Oh, there wait, was Jim's that got one, one game recently that we played, remember, and I told you that the font on the cards was so <sighs> awful. Ah. Yes, that was Pandemic Iberia. Okay. Now, that is, that is where it's actively hurting the game because it's not legible. Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. I so, mean, I guess that I'm falls... Gonna, that doesn't really fall into bad art. That just falls well, into... Well, he said art or visual presentation. But for the most part, he, he really means you know art and graphic design yeah, yeah. and all of that stuff. That was a fair point. Now, I, I'll still stand by the fact that I just think you need to be wearing your glasses when you're playing that game because I could read the board just fine. But I, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, the, the font kind of got lost in the busyness of the board a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just on the whole... Like, I mean, the main example I can think of, you know, just the other day we played um, Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember, we played a prototype of it a year ago. Of course I do. And it was ugly. <laughs> just absolutely. It was one of the most ugly prototypes I've ever filmed a run-through for. Uh, so bad that I actually did an update say, hey, everybody, if you only ever watched my original run-through, here's what the final game looks like. And it looks really, really nice. But I remember when we played that ugly, ugly prototype last year, we still loved it. I mean, we were still just head over heels in love with that game. Yeah. And do, or do we love the game more now that it looks pretty? I don't know. I guess? I think, I think we do. Okay. Because it just bumps it up a bit. Yeah. I guess... wouldn't, we would not play it because it was ugly, but I think we would more happily think of playing it now that it's even prettier. Sure. So art is there's no downside to art for us. It's only potential upside. Let's see. Then we have Daniel who asks, in my and Jen's opinion, why aren't there any deep, heavy, crunchy co-ops? Mage Knight is the only truly deep co-op I know of, and it's not even marketed as such, and none of the other ones come even close. Would you like a heavy, meaty co-op, honey pie? Um, my main problem with co-ops is that they throw a bunch of stuff at you and make me feel absolutely hopeless from, like, the very first turn. Right, but a light co-op can do that just as easily as a heavy co-op. Yeah, so I'm not sure why I'd want a heavier, meatier co-op that makes me feel even more despondent. But no, I mean, but no, that, 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 that it's completely separate. I mean, he's not saying... You're, you're talking about difficulty. You know, how hard is it? How much does it beat you down? He's not talking about that. Ah. He's talking about how deep and complex it is. I mean, you compare Pandemic, mm -hmm. which is a very streamlined, simple, elegant game. I mean, we could teach your parents how to play in Pandemic, no problem. Yeah. I'm not saying it's a light game, because, you know, there are some interesting, tough, challenging decisions to make in that game, but it's still very simple and smooth, and, um, you know, and if you play it on easy, it's not even particularly challenging. But if you compare that to, imagine trying to teach your parents to play a pandemic versus Agricola. Yeah. Or you know, even Agricola is a over. deeper, heavier, richer, meatier, crunchier game. Okay, I gotcha. So that's the thing. And I mean, it's actually, it's interesting. He points it out. I'm actually going to Board Game Geek right now to the advanced search because I, I want to test this. Let's see. Filter well, on board game. I think co-op games that we've played. Well, yeah, we play lots of co-op games, but... What's that Time Stories? We play that co-op. Yeah, but... What? Is that not meaty? I'm trying to think. I know, compare, <laughs> compare any co-op we've played that you can think of. Hmm. Forbidden Desert, Pandemic, um, you know, there's tons of them. Yeah. And compare that to Dungeon Pets. Just how far Dungeon Pets puts you through the ringer. 
that's a that's a moderate. That's, I'm not going to say that's a super heavy game, but that's on you know that's on the heavy side of medium weight. Okay. You know because you, you I mean you you have so many pets, you have so many cards you're having to you know try and figure out you know, you, you know the worker placement, the trying to figure out how many imps. I mean that's a big. There's a ton of stuff going on in that game. Again, imagine just trying to teach your parents how to play dungeon pets. Okay. And imagine there were a co-op game that were that that was that heavy and dense and involved and complex. Okay, well, yeah, I'd like it. <laughs> okay, there you go. As long as I'm playing with you. Actually, was that the question though? What question was one? Would you like it? Or actually no, there was two questions. Would you like one? Answer yes. Other question, why aren't there any? And the thing is, I don't know if that's actually true or not. I am actually on Board Game Geek right now. I do not search expansion, search for everything with cooperative play, but I can do a sort and say, have at least uh, 10 people rating it, and I want to see games that are at least uh, 3.5 on the 5 point, um, what's it called, the, the, the scale, the weight scale. Or the, uh, yeah, the weight range. Uh, let's see. And 3.5. That's actually pretty heavy. Because nothing makes it to a 5. So, what have we got here? Let's see. We've got, well, Mage Knight, as he mentioned. Uh, Kingdom Death Monster. I'm never going to play that. Robinson Crusoe, Arkham Horror, Mistfall, Star Trek Frontiers. Is that the uh, one we just played? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, I mean, it, this came up with what? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 games that, uh, at least, you know, that the people have actually ranked fairly high. Although it's interesting, he mentioned Mage Knight. It shows up here along with Star Trek Frontiers, which is basically Mage Knight in space. Honestly, those are not cooperative games. Those things are designed from the ground up to be competitive games. And in my opinion, if you play those cooperatively, you're not getting the entire experience, and you're getting kind of a substandard experience. But Arkham Horror is certainly... Re- well, Arkham Horror is a really simple game, but it's just completely drowning in an endless, meaningless sea of stupid little persnickety rules, which is actually really what the problem is with Mage Knight as well. I mean, I don't know. I, honestly, I am not interested in a game that would get its weight from ridiculous amounts of complexity. And and just endless rule upon rule upon rule that's I easy to lose track of. Quadruple second that. Yeah, uh, because it, you re- really, it's it's interesting. There are two ways to define the overall crunchiness of a game: its weight or its complexity. And I think a lot of people get those two things confused. Complexity. I mean, in my opinion, the more complex it gets, the the worse a game gets. The more the more there are rules upon rules, rules just for the sake of rules to you know to have thematic uh, covering of every possible thing that can happen or whatever. Like Arkham Horror is just absolutely terrible. Yeah, it's complex and it's meaty and it it doesn't give you a lot to think about. It just gives you a lot to process. And honestly, that's of no interest to me whatsoever. Um, and it's of no interest in right. me to sit around while you check. The <laughs> while rules. I reread the rules fifty thousand times to try to right. What was this? I know there was some weird exception to this rule. That okay, ah, um, you know. So if you're talking about the weight, you can either go with depth or complexity. <laughs> what we really love is a lot of depth. Um, you know, where a super duper simple decision of play this card into this slot or this slot, something as simple as that could be the toughest decision to make in the universe because there are so many implications and ramifications for that decision. Um, you know, and that's what we like to see. And, 
You know, I mean, I would say for the most part, you know, that is kind of the 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 weight that a, a good co-op does give because in a co-op, you know, you're not playing against another human being who can create their own depth and weight just because they're a challenging opponent. You're playing against a system that has to be designed to make things tough for you. And yeah, I mean, there are sometimes just agonizing decisions to be made in any good co-op. But um yeah, I mean, I think they are few and far between. Why would that be? Why would that be? Because it's difficult to program the AI to be worthy of a human. Ooh, there's a good answer. I like that. Yes, I mean, <laughs> co-ops are still actually, relatively speaking, a, a kind of a new breakthrough in board game design. There aren't near as many of them as there are competitive games. There aren't near as many designers working on them. And there isn't near as tall a mountain of established designs to build on. Uh, you know, co-ops are like undiscovered country. They're a brand new frontier. And so I think maybe as we move forward in time and, you know, uh, and, you know, people keep building and iterating on stuff that has come before, you probably will start to see heavier and heavier, meatier and meatier co-ops. Although it's another interesting thing as well. <clears throat> I don't know, Daniel... But if he's looking, I mean, often people who are looking for insanely deep, heavy, meaty, crunchy games are a certain type of gamer that has absolutely zero interest in cooperating with other gamers because they have zero interest in putting their test, you know, testing themselves against an artificial simulation. They, they don't feel that it is a meaningful game experience unless they are going up against equally brilliant str strategic uh, tacticians. And, uh, you know, for them, for a lot of people who want really... You know, I'm talking about, you know, hardcore war gamers and stuff like that. Really deep. You know, uh, chess players. You know, people who want this insanely deep thing, they want to be tested against another human being. You tell them, hey, let's work together to play against this pre-programmed AI system. And they're like, I don't want to play against that. I want to play against a human being. So, I don't know. Maybe there's just not as much of an audience when it boils right down to it. And then, as Jen said, I think it's entirely right. It's going to be a lot harder. And really, I mean, heck, that list of examples I just found on Board Game Geek, they're, they are creating that deeper, crunchier, richer thing, not by, or, you know, that, that, that heavier game, not by making it deeper, but by making it more complex. And I would say that's true for Mage Knight as well. I mean, Mage Knight and Star Trek Frontiers is a brilliant system. I love the deck building of, hey, look, I've got these cards. Each card has two different uses, but, um, you know, and, and how you put them together determines how well you do with the game. But, I mean, that game is heavy just because there's about a bajillion and a half stupid little rules and exceptions to every single thing that just drives me nuts and makes me hate playing the game. I don't want to see that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know, honey, do you think we've covered that well enough? Yeah, but also, just to reiterate, the people that want that kind of really deep experience, as you said, they want to play against somebody. They don't want to play with somebody. Yep, yep. So I think that's part of it, too. Ooh, that's deep. They want to play against somebody, not with somebody. All right, last game question. Uh, Brian asks, actually, and this isn't games, this is about the show. Uh, would you or one of your fans be willing to make a Rotto Hates Dice supercut video? Every time I do a run-through and yell at the dice for being ridiculous, Brian can't help but crack up. So I'm not going to do it because, honestly, that would be a lot of work. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, sometimes, 
I mean, gosh, what was a video that just went absolutely off the rails insane? Where it was just, yeah, when, when I just start shouting at the dice because that's impossible and doing my, uh, my Luke on Bespin catwalk, that's not true, that's impossible type thing, I do get a little carried away sometimes. <laughs> so I can imagine, uh, what, what, what type, that would be cute, but I'm not going to do it. But heck, maybe somebody listening out there will, uh, uh, you know, get the ambition to do it because that would be pretty funny. Well, hey, it's Christmas break coming up, so people will have time, right? Yep. <laughs> so, uh, that was it, honey. That was it for the game stuff. So Ooh. hold on, everybody. Um, we'll be back for the personal Q&A, of which there's only one, two, three, four, five emails. Folks, remember, you can always send emails to questions at rotto.com, and uh, we'll be happy to answer them. But uh, there weren't there many that showed up this time. But uh, for now, for people who don't care about personal stuff, they're only here for the games, I'm just going to say thanks for listening. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. And now, for folks who want to hear the personal stuff, hold on. Okay, everybody. Jen's still here. She's actually lying on the floor right now because I think she threw out her shoulder or something. Oh, just woke up with my shoulder funny. She woke up with her shoulder funny, so she's just lying on the floor, um, all stretched out, <laughs> not moving at all, ready to answer your questions. Starting with Jason, who, honey, Jason would like to know, yes. do we miss living in the big stone castle-like house that we used to live in Malta? Sometimes. He always loves seeing our videos when we live there. Yeah. Um, and I gotta say, it is a lot handier to live on Malta than it is to live on Gozo. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, certainly, well, that's a different thing. Do how do we feel about living in Malta versus Gozo? Um, but yeah, the big house, which for people who don't know, uh, you can go do a search for it online. It was in the walled city of Emdina, which is spelled M-D-I-N-A. It was actually the location that a lot of um, Game of Thrones first season was filmed in, uh, you know, because it has a really wonderful medieval fantasy-like quality to it. And Jan and I, we lived there for nine months, I guess. I think you lived there for a year, but I, I lived there for a year. Yeah. Jen lived there for nine months, um, and you know, I loved living in Emdina. Yeah, that was awesome. It was very, very cool, um, and the house was neat, but it was certainly not convenient. There was nothing convenient about living in that house. I mean, it, you know, it had what a three-story vaulted ceiling, <laughs> and all the walls were stone. Yeah. So everything echoed like crazy. You know, and it definitely hurt the sound quality of my show filming in there. But I mean, remember, just trying to watch TV yeah. was painful because there was just all this crazy echo reverb. We had to go buy some special speaker um, that would like kind of did a directed, um, you know, didn't kind of go omnidirectional, but was, you know, to try and minimize that. And, you know, and it wasn't great for Dob, who was a very old oh, girl. Yeah. And, you know, it was three stories. And we'd have to go three stories up of slippery marble stairs every night. Yep. Uh, so that wasn't great for I her. I bought her little doggy booties. But, uh, you know, we didn't actually end up using them. <laughs> you know, to give her better friction. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was cool. But, you know, I honestly, I don't miss it at all. And the other thing, living in Emdina... It's funny. It's oh. called the Silent City. It is That's not uh, silent. because it's been around forever, and it used to <laughs> mostly be peopled by monks, I guess. But it is nothing but silent now. Uh, I mean, just nonstop tourists right outside our front door. Loud church bells ringing twenty four seven. I mean, literally all night long. Sometimes it's absolutely insane. So I don't miss that either. I do miss the convenience of living on Malta because living out on the far, far north end of Gozo 
is lovely and it's gorgeous. It's secluded, but it is also incredibly inconvenient. Yep. Um, but yeah, you have anything to add to that, Honey Pie? Um, I just also really loved. I mean, every time you walked out the door, you felt like you were in this amazing historical place. Well, you were. You didn't feel like it. You were. I was, like it. and I just really drank that in when we lived there. I just felt that it was an amazing opportunity to live somewhere that ancient. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really cool. I mean, but you every time you walk out the door here, you got the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, I'm not saying it's not fantastic here. I'm just he was asking about yeah. Medina. Okay. Well, there you go, Jason. Um, he also had maybe a stretch goal next year to move back. Oh, uh, gosh, no. <laughs> no, I can't put up with that. all those church bells. Yeah, yeah, the bells, the bells. We have some churches um, that are about, I don't know, a couple miles away from us now. And so if I go outside, I can hear church bells, but um, it's not <laughs> but yeah. it's not reverberating through my skull. Yeah, not 100 <laughs> meters away, 50 meters away. Yeah. Yeah, that was, and also that was when they did the festa there, oh my gosh! Because it's a walled city, there's not a lot of greenery. All that just the noise just reverberates. Yeah, I, Mdina must be the number one tourist attraction in all of Malta in the it entire is. country. Yeah, so it it's like we were practically living in Malta's version of Disneyland, living inside Disneyland. Yep. For all intents and purposes, it's in terms of the yeah, and so yeah, I don't miss it. I gotta say, all right, it was cool. It was definitely cool. Glad yeah. we did it. No need to go back though. All righty, Paul asks. How many hours, on average, would you say we get spare time outside of board gaming and glass making? Oh, well, you know, we sleep and we eat, right? <laughs> <laughs> Walk the dogs. I don't know. I mean, we live... We live well, he has a follow-up question as well. Uh, how do we like to spend our free time together when we're not, quote, working? Because board games are work, basically, yeah. and glass is work. But on the other hand, it's, it's things that we're both interested in. And I think, you know, you hear that, oh, find something to do that somebody, you know, that you do even if nobody pays you to do it. And you've found the work that you should be doing with your life. So I don't think that's how they put it. Well, it's something like that. Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, I think, is the, or something like that. But, yeah. That's a more succinct way to put it. Yep, yep, yep. But, so anyway, I mean, I'm interested in glass regardless of if I'm actually making that day or whatever. So, I mean, I spend a lot of my time... You know, looking at glass and thinking about glass and whatever, it's its not necessarily work for me. So that's one of my hobbies. I still, even though it's work, it's also a hobby. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have the same thing. I mean, if I'm not filming a game or I'm not learning a game or I'm playing a game, I'm pretty much reading about games. I mean, I'm on BoardGameGeek all the time. I'm constantly asking, answering questions that come up on YouTube and BoardGameGeek and Reddit and email and Geek Mail and Facebook and Twitter. And I mean, <laughs> I spend hours, literally hours every day just being my own social community manager for Arado Runs Through. I mean, this is a job that other places actually hire somebody full-time to do. I'm just, I spend a lot of time, a lot, a lot of time doing that. Um, Jen, I know you spend an hour to two hours every day reading when you go to bed. Yep, I like to read. Yep, uh, and I, after Jen goes to bed to read, I stay up and spend an hour or two hours watching TV shows or movies that Jen has absolutely zero desire in watching. I don't even want to be in the same room. <laughs> yep, <laughs> and uh, so there's that. Uh, we walk the dogs. And we walk the dogs. That's yep. I enjoy that's cooking. Maybe an hour a day. No, not even. It's I, if you were to average it out over a week, I would say it's probably a half an hour a day. Because no. some days we're bad and we don't walk them. Yeah, but some days I take them up over the hill and around yeah. the end. Yeah. So I think it, it probably averages out to an hour a day. Yeah. All right. Um, Not but, for you, for me. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay. 
So, I mean, I think that's about it, Paul. Um, let's see. David sent an email entitled Olive Oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Would that be Popeye's girlfriend? <laughs> well, I don't think it is about uh, you know the uh, Popeye village, no. Uh, since he made a trip to Spain, he's become enamored with fine olive oil. Uh, it's now competing with board games for his discretionary income. Ooh. He was wondering, given that uh, it's uh, getting on to oil harvest time, do they produce olive oil in Malta, and is it used a lot in local cuisine? I have no idea. Yes, they do, and yes, it is. Okay. That all you got to say? Uh, yeah, I mean, they do. They actually do like vineyard tours, but they do olive grove tours, and you can go and you can um, actually watch it being made, the pomace and the squeezing of the oil and all have, of that. Have you done that? I haven't, but oh. I, I've heard that it's available. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, if you come to Malta, that would be one of the things you could do. All right. Uh, honey, David has a question for you. You mentioned a while back a book that you read about an alternate history where the Mongols conquered Europe. Oh, yes. Do you remember the name and author? Yes. The author is Khan Igoldson. Can you just look that up since you're... How do you spell it? Or how do you think you spell it? I think it's spelled C-O-N-N-I-G-U-L-D-S-O-N, I think. No. C-O-N-N... I G G U L D E N. You were close. I- Igledon. Con Igledon. Yep. Is the author. Yep. Of the best-selling book Emperor and Conqueror. Well, he's done ones on uh, like Caesar as well, but look for the one with the Mongol Empire. Right. But now I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. David has it slightly incorrect. That, that that those were not alt history about how the Mongols. Um, oh, correct. No, that would be... That no. is the, it, it, was, it, was, it was a historical fictionalization of the real stuff that happened. Yes. Or it was like a, a fictionalized accounting of what really happened. Well, I mean, who knows what really happened? It was so long yeah. ago. But um, that it's his best reconstruction of... Yeah. And it's, it's not an alternate history where, timeline. oh, look, here's what happened to the world because the Mongols didn't turn back. Correct. I think what David's incorrect is you have talked about in the past reading Con Igledon's uh, books and really being blown away by, uh, when you were confronted during reading. I mean, did the, does the book address it at all? Yes. Okay, so the book actually has passages or chapters devoted to, and oh my gosh, just imagine what would have happened if they hadn't turned back and gone back home. No, not really. Not passages, not chapters. It's, it's in the historical context, whereas if this, if this particular brother of Genghis Khan hadn't been turned back at this particular time... Yeah. He would have spread further west and yeah. conquered all of Europe, mm-hmm. and we'd all be Chinese. Right, but it, it doesn't actually tell any stories in that alternate version of the world. Correct. It's just you've mentioned in the past that that blew you away. Yeah, it fired my imagination. Yeah. So anyway, um, and they're apparently excellent books. You absolutely love them. Um. I, I, yes, I did enjoy them, and I thought they were very thought provoking. Okay. But there's some. There's a bunch of violence, so you know, yeah, I kind of skipped over. Yeah. Uh, uh, read, read it with one eye closed kind of a thing <laughs> kind of okay we're okay let me just skip to every tenth word <laughs> yeah righty because you know they do attack a lot and after you've read maybe the first attack thing you don't need to read every attack thing yep all right so last question is from charlotte who wrote an email in an incredibly small font oh. can i zoom this in there we go let's see charlotte asks when we first came to Malta, did we experience culture shock? What are some of the cultural differences between Malta and the U.S. 
slash UK. Uh, do you perennially feel, uh, perennially feel like tourists here? Uh, do you ever have that feeling at all? I am thinking this could well happen if you move to a popular holiday, if one moves to a popular holiday destination. I'm guessing you do not speak the local language, uh, since you can get around with English fine. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see. Apparently, apparently Charlotte asked in the past the difference between the U.S. and U.K., and we've answered that. So now she's interested about the cultural differences related to Malta. She herself has moved from Germany to the U.K. and then just a month or so ago to Canada. So she's experienced varying degrees of culture shock. But the negatives pass quickly and become resigned to the fact that while they adore many of the things in the countries that they lived in, cultural facets of the UK that I will never get used to and don't particularly want to get used to um, in Canada. But that's fine. So, honey, apparently in the past we've talked about UK at length, but we have not talked about Malta. Or, you know, our culture shock as Americans. Sure. Um, well, I think one of the, the main things that we discussed before about the UK, and it certainly holds true even more so for Malta is just the difficulty of finding and buying what you're trying to find and buy. We are Americans. We were born and bred to be consumers. Well, I mean, you need what you need, right? (laughs) Not like uh, getting a a dog collar or something should be that big a palava. You should be able to go to a, you know, find a store, go inside, have a reasonable selection and buy something. It's not asking a lot, but in Malta, in particular, I think because a lot of people um, don't move around very much, it's a tiny country for one thing, everybody knows when you're born somewhere, I mean, you just know where all the stuff is. And a lot of the stores have little tiny signs in their windows, and you wouldn't even necessarily know it's a store, you know, once they close their garage doors or something, you would never know there's a shop in there. So being a foreigner, you just don't know where stuff is. So, I mean, you do eventually find your feet and you find enough that you, you, you get what you need and the other stuff you either buy on eBay or have your mom send you from the U.S. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I would say, so that was our number one, my number one thing. Um, there's, there's other things like there's a different sensibility about littering here, <laughs> which we find really disappointing. Well, litter exists everywhere, but it's just off the charts here in Malta. Uh, it, 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 I mean, I can only assume it is a cultural, social, so, societal thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, so many times we're just driving through the countryside and, oh, look, here's an old busted up uh, clothes washing machine just thrown to the side of the road. Yep, or mattresses. And it's or... it's been there for years. And no one's ever going to do anything about it ever, ever, ever. It will just, it will decompose um, <laughs> you know, over the away. next, uh, you know, however many hundreds of years. It'll just sit here. And, you know, and that kind of stuff is absolutely everywhere. Well, and builders will just back their trucks up and dump, you know, bricks and tile and plaster yeah. dust. And just, they'll just, for whatever, I don't know why they can't now, take it to the civic amenity site and... Get rid of it there. I mean, that's what they're for. Now, the thing is, I mean, that kind of stuff happens everywhere in the world. But in Malta, which I looked it up recently, is the ninth smallest country in the world. Um, It's just much more noticeable because there aren't that many places that are off the beaten track. There's no off the beaten track in this country. Every track is very well beaten. So you just stumble across (laughs) it all the time. Just junk and garbage everywhere. Unless you come here as a tourist. And you stay in the tourist area. Because then, I mean, those places are kept immaculate. And uh, But as soon as you go um, off tourist row, yeah, it's... Uh, it, 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 you know, the, 
It, this is a very, it's one of the most prosperous countries, one of the most prosperous economies in the EU. But you wouldn't know it to look at it. I mean, it, the, the whole country just feels very run down and um, not well tidy or, 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 or looked after. And it's really crazy. We've also talked in the past about just the absolute insane cultural obsession here with killing small migratory birds. Or capturing or killing. I mean, you know, you know, Maltese that we absolutely love. People we just think are, are very, very sharp, compassionate, lovely, um, you know, progressive people capture wild birds and keep them in cages for the rest of their lives. And they think it's perfectly normal and they don't think twice about it at all. No, and it's a hobby. It's, it's one of those things that they look forward to every fall. It's just, it's, yeah. I mean, so there, you know, that, that's just freaky. I, I just can't get used to that at all. Um, just so strange. I mean, that's not, I know, to be fair, there are certainly a, the younger generation is turning away from that more and more. Although there's plenty of folks in the younger generation who, um, you know, embrace their heritage and want to go out and capture small migratory birds, which is terrible for the birds because we're out here in the middle of the ocean. I mean, this, this is pretty much the only island for these birds to stop at. And it's a death trap. <laughs> don't stop here, birds. Try to find another way. And we can't put a sign out for them because they don't I, read. No. Uh, yeah, and that just, uh, that's just absolutely horrible. Um, let's see, what, what other cultural things are there? Well, but also, I mean, Malta has culturally not been very animal activist-oriented. Sure. Um, but things have gotten a lot better. Just in the time we've been here, just yeah. Just in the time we've been here. Yeah, I mean, that's yep. just a few years. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely getting better. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a smart country. You know, everybody's very politically involved. I mean, yeah. during um, the elections, you get 90% turnout, and that's voluntary turnout. That's not a mandatory vote here. Uh, it, you know, it's absolutely, there's a lot of absolutely amazing things about this. The country itself is crazy religious. Um, you know, it's like 90% it. Roman Catholic. What, honey pie? But they don't shove anything down anybody's throats. No, that's true. But I mean, they do still, uh, you know, it, it's really deeply, deeply ingrained. Um, which is why, I mean, abortion is still illegal. Abortion is totally illegal in the country. So you pretty much have to leave the country or do, you know, illegal backyard stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, divorce was only made legal, I think, within the last decade. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's some, there's some odd to our eyes cultural impact of that. But on the flip side, I mean, maybe a positive cultural impact is, uh, family is incredibly strong here. You know, familial ties, maybe in part because it's such a small country, there's no place for anybody to go. But, you know, these days, I know in the West, in the States, it's become this weird divide between Gen Xers and Millennials that Millennials are, li- are living with their parents later and later and later into life. And everybody's saying, what's with these Millennials? They're completely, um, you know, they're, they're lazy and shiftless. They won't get out and make their own way in life. In Malta, parents are perfectly fine. They're happy to have their kids stay with them. What? Where are you going to go? Stay, stay, stay till your 30s. We don't care. Um, we want you to be here. We're a tight family unit. You know, have your kids. You know, it's, uh, you know, so there's very different attitude in that regard as well. Um, in terms of language, almost everybody speaks very fluent English. We've occasionally run into somebody who, um, you know, who we've had to have dealings with that as, that speaks in kind of broken English. That's kind of tricky, but it's so rare. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and just even when you hear Maltese talking amongst themselves, I mean, I, I can, I, yeah, I've gotten to the, where I can easily notice the blurring and blending between Maltese and English and Italian. They just constantly switch back and forth between the three, depending on whatever they're talking about. Uh, so I hear that a lot. Cause it's largely a trilingual, 
uh, nation because they they grow up learning Maltese at home, English at school, and Italian by watching TV. So, which is actually really really cool. I mean, I'm certainly yeah. very jealous that we uh, stupid ignorant Americans can only speak one language and ambition, uh, uh, ambition of German of yeah. Deutsch. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of shifts. I mean, would you say there has been any culture shock? I mean, I guess the birds and the uh, animal rights stuff is probably the most shock, and the and the garbage is the most shocking thing. Just the the culturally absolutely wacky attitudes there. Well, and also on the positive side, we can say that Malta is very low crime. Crazy low crime. It's got it must have one of the lowest crime rates in the world yep. or in the Western world. Uh, it, yeah, it's absolutely. It, it's it's. I'm not gonna say it's non-existent. But, you know, in a country of, well, I think it's half a million. It's not even half a million people in this entire country, something like that. 50,000. No, no, no. I, I, uh, Gozo is 50,000. Malta as a whole, I think, is like 400,000. Oh, yeah. I something think you're like right, that. actually. 350. Yeah, something like that. Yep, yep. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even for the incredibly small population, crime is just crazy low. I mean, uh, you read the newspaper. It's breaking news when um, somebody gets their, you know, gets pickpocketed. Or, or something. I mean, it, 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 you know, that's like, what? Someone in the country had their pocket picked? Have, you know, somebody uh, get Inspector Clouseau on the case. This is this must be solved. It, it's, uh, which is cool. That's yeah. it's absolutely amazing. I think the police mainly wander around giving people parking tickets. <laughs> yeah. They seem to accrue a goodly many of those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not to say. I mean, there are there is the occasional murder, and oh. there are some bad things too. But I mean, they're very Driving. few and far between. Oh yeah, and uh, driving is absolutely insane here. I guess that's par for the course. It's it's kind of similar to it- Italian driving. Although when we've driven in Italy, we didn't find anywhere near as bad. But yeah, um, you really have to be a defensive driver in this country. Well, no, you have to be an offensive driver in this country. Um, no, everybody you know, else is offensive. That means you better be on the. No, defense. no, no, no. They only respect strength, honey. Well, <laughs> I just drive slow and keep yeah. my eyes peeled. If you want to get a, if you want to get ahead on the road, you must take what is yours. No, that's true. Damn the consequences. Yep, pull out into traffic. They'll yep. stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll stop. Whatever's in the rearview mirror, that's their problem. <laughs> You're only moving forward. There is no backward. Well, and even if you're moving forward, they'll stop. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely different in a lot of ways, but it's it's still lovely. We we very much enjoy it. Yep. And uh, that's it, folks. Thanks for your questions. And that's it for the entire podcast. Uh, maybe a bit shorter than normal, but what the heck. I'm just going to uh, end it right there and say thanks for listening, everybody. Once again, questions to questions at rotto.com. And otherwise, have a very, very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.